Ladies and gentlemen, we are about to start our next table reading, and I feel I should warn you that this podcast is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. And with that, please take your seats, for the veil is lifting, and the table read is about to begin. Ladies and gentlemen, I humbly welcome you to another edition of The Table Read. It is a new dawn, it is a new day, it is inauguration day, and uh, a little bit giddy, and I, I welcome you humbly to our nice little corner of the internet where we discuss horror projects with horror creators. And as you may be aware, if you're not, I start and end with a strange fact, and the one I'm going to begin with uh, is about how George Washington almost became a zombie. See, George Washington was an incredible man. He was the commander of the Revolutionary Army. He oversaw the creation of the U.S. Constitution, and he became the nation's first president. And after his death, he was almost turned into a zombie. This affair began on December 13th, 1799, when Washington came down with cold-like symptoms. Soon he was struggling to breathe, and three physicians were summoned to his bedside. Over the next several hours, the doctors did their best, but in 1799, that was tantamount to torture. Washington was given an enema, followed by a concoction that made him vomit. Spanish fly was applied to his limbs and throat, and even worse, physicians drained about 80 ounces of the president's blood. The cures were basically worse than the illness, and Washington passed away on December 14th. However, a fourth physician, William Thornton, had a rather weird idea. Arriving after Washington's death, Thornton wondered if he could resurrect the president. First, he would rub Washington's corpse with blankets. Then, after performing a tracheotomy, he would use a bellows to fill the president's lung with oxygen. And finally, Thornton would pump the body full of lamb's blood. So uh, a little bit, a little bit of a strange one. And apparently uh, quite a few doctors back in the day thought the lamb's blood really could rejuvenate the body. Still, Washington's family passed on the offer before to let the dead stay dead. So uh, when you think you know everything in the world, there's always something that comes out and surprises you, which leads me neatly on to our guest, who is a breath of fresh air in the horror community. My guest today is a seasoned voice actor. You will have heard him on the Fiona Potts interview. The No Sleep Podcast, Calling Darkness, to come on and my join podcast as R.L. Stein in The Writer's Mythos, and of course, the writer, producer, and sound designer for the death of Dr. John Parker. He is Dan Sapula. Dan, how are we? Well, I'm a little freaked out because as an American, I did not know that story. <laughs> so, you know about JFK's missing brain? Because that's also something. I've actually, <laughs> no, I actually know about that, but the <laughs> lamb's blood thing kind of threw me off just a little yeah. bit. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Okay, so I learned something today from an Englishman. That's interesting. I mean, wow. remedy, re- home remedies are weird. Like, um, they, they used to think, like, um, I mean, this is, like, going way back, but, like, medicine, even before Hipp- Hippocrates, was, like, considered a strange sort of magic. So if something seemed to work on one person, it was like, oh, it works for everybody. Well, and he, so this, you know, it's weird, man. Yeah, keep in mind, I, I live about 35 minutes away from the the uh, vaunted home of the Salem witch trials. So I, oh, you know, right, in, in my yeah, in my corner of the mm. world, we're no stranger to uh, magic and medicine. Sometimes swapping places. So it's, yeah, the mysticism line is still like blurred even now. I mean, like you, know, you hear stories where people like um, in in certain places in the world, um, albinoism is seen as magic, and if you and they like they pay to like grab these people, kill them, and take their limbs and eat them or like smoke them because they think it produ- provides medicinal properties. Oh lord! So there's this weird perception of like rarity and sh- and like a deviation from the norm is somehow mystical. It's, f- it's so weird. And it's I'm so pale weird. enough that I could be considered albino. So that's frightening to me personally. <laughs> so. I, yeah, definitely. You, you, I, I don't know if I would have said you were Italian, when, like even though you're like your last name, 
I actually, I'm not gonna lie, I will admit this on the show. I thought your last name was like almost like Slavic. Like something about and I realize hearing out loud, like Zapula really? has a very like Sicilian starter, but there was something about yeah. I was like, oh, Slavic. Yeah, it's very strange. But you are you are a um a, a proud Italian. I am. I am uh mostly Italian Sicilian and it's it's funny. I I 25% of me is kind of like a French Canadian English uh, concoction mm. and that's the complexion that I got. So I'm I'm mm. blessed to have the Italian facial hair structure. I was going to say. Thank you. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I know this is coming out in an audio format, so you can't see them. Oh, they can look you up on the website and then see your headshot. Oh, so see, there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but the skin tone is just, mm. just god awfully white. I mean, it's like, mm. it's translucent white. Um, would you, would you have liked the olive skin complexion and, or are you kind of like, have you come to peace with being like, um, like, like a, like a lighter complexion? Well, I mean, at this point, I don't really have much of a choice. I mean, I'm 37, <laughs> so it's like, I can't back out 37? now. 37? I, yeah, right? I know. I, I don't I look a day over thought, 36. So. <laughs> I, I honestly thought like, uh, I mean, I'm staring 30 down this year, which is terrifying me, God, but I, I, I honestly, honestly thought, um, you were like a, maybe a year or two older than me. Like really? You, you, you have very good skin. Sir. Thank you. Oh, you know, like it, I think like there's this perception that like certain physical traits make someone look older, but I've never thought that I was like, I, I go on like skin and like, uh, youthful exuberance. And like when someone's got that kind of like energy of being like um, fun, like, I mean, it's kind of mean to say but like fun loving and like they have that sense of, of adventure, you get a youthful kind of spirit from them. Well, I have to have that because mathematically my life is almost half over. So mm, uh, <laughs> yeah, crisis is coming, but it comes across in your acting, right? Like when, when you did, um, even when you performed for me um, and you know, you, you, were, you just came out in a way where it was, you brought a, a really unique life to it. And it was something where when, when we were looking at the, um, we were looking at the casting and I had this thought and I was just like, you know what? Like I really want Dan for R.L. Stein and, and David and I talked about it because uh, for those who don't know, R.L. Stein was a comedian. He was, and wasn't, is extremely witty. He's very funny, but he has this amazing deadpan delivery. If you have, if any of you get a chance, go and listen to some of his interviews. He is just so naturally funny. And, and we, we talked about a few different voice actors and, and, and it was David who suggested you. And I went and listened to some of your work on the No Sleep podcast and Parker. I was like, oh, this guy's got it. This guy, this guy has that like natural kind of flair to it. And, and, and I think like that, you know, makes you stand out in that like lineup because voice acting is much like horror writing. It's and podcasting even it's very oversaturated, not in a bad way, but it, you, you have to find a way of finding your niche, right? Yeah. I mean, there, and first of all, thank you. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, the, the beauty of, of no sleep is that we have a lot of people who could do a lot of different things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and when, you know, we're talking about deadpan comedy for, for instance, when I was kind of looking up the, you know, the kind of personality that RL Stein has, mm. I, I actually equated him a lot to kind of horrors version of Larry David. Um, yeah, you know, he looks like Larry. He David does a well. little bit. Right. And his, That's and really his delivery is, is very much akin to the same thing where yeah. he, he's definitely making a joke, but you don't realize it unless you're in on, uh, on the shtick. Yeah. You know? And so I, I tried to, to, you know, make a perfect kind of horror baby out of Larry David and Bernie Sanders and just kind of push them together. And, and out came R.L. Stein, you know, and, and that's where we yeah. ended up in this like strange note, area that was of dry like, wit. <laughs> so that was the side note, but that was like the only regret from inauguration. The, the only regret was like, 
Just other mittens. Wishing so. it was Bernie. Wishing it was Bernie, man. <laughs> but, like, let's give a shout out to our boy because he came dressed like it wasn't even the last thing on his list to do today. No, he did not give a, a <laughs> damn at all. Uh, and and the funny one. thing is, too, so my wife was telling me about this about an hour ago. So mm. uh, by the time this airs, uh, y'all have, will, uh, have seen the pictures of Bernie Sanders, you know, sitting cross-legged at the inauguration like he ha- he's mm. missing a lunch. And so he has these giant mittens on. And if you've mm-hmm. ever been to Vermont, it's like those are Vermont mittens. They're just <laughs> like oversized and goofy, like like cooking mm-hmm. mitts. And so the the woman who owns the Etsy shop who mm-hmm. made those mittens, uh, apparently her name got leaked somewhere on Twitter and the thing went viral. And apparently she's oh. like a millionaire overnight now. Are you, what, so people just went and like yeah on mass? Yeah, like her store is blowing up right now. Wait, if they're handmade though... So, so hang on. So, so let's let's say for argument's sake, the one pair of those is twenty five dollars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's gotten five hundred thousand orders, <laughs> which I don't doubt that she has. She has to hire you, some people. <laughs> I mean, some people like buy a goddamn factory because, like, like I, I just that must be like both a wonderful thing, but to me, that is terrifying. Imagine waking up and knowing you have these orders. Like and and your biggest order day was like thirty in a week, and oh, you yeah. have half a million. Like I, I mean, I'm really happy for it, but I really hope that people, people could be dicks. So I really hope that, that <laughs> people are patient because it could, you know, the waiting time is going to go from three days to three months, like like oh, that. Yeah. You know, and it, it's not like you can just put out, you know, a want ad, and all these people out there know how to make amazing no. mittens. It's it's a very specialized thing, right? Right, it's crotcheting, right? Yeah, I don't mm. freaking know how to do it. So, um, yeah, and one of those can take at least a day for one pair, I would think. Well, you, so, remember when, you remember when masks first became um, a necessity around the world about, Jesus, 12 months ago? And, and people had um, N95 masks and they had, they had um, standard um, a proper droplet masks, but people mm-hmm. wanted um, fabric to you go out. And obviously, we're, we like to accessorize. I remember when I, I had an N95 when I visited my father, but when I was going out to the grocery store and I didn't need to be too close to people, I was like, oh, I can get away with fabric as long as I'm safe. And I went on Etsy, and this is, this is March. And the order, and bear in mind, these are UK sellers, was July. Like, that, oh it was gosh. that level. Like, I got, I ended up getting one in, like, I think, like, 40, 30, 40 days later. But my God, I was just like, both, I was very happy. So I was like, well, good. The supply and demand is, it, that's, that's mm. good. People wearing very masked. Mm. But that was real. And then I went and checked out of interest. I checked to Christmas, and it's still, like, two, three-month delays. Like, oh because gosh. people are just buying en masse. But that's really, that's really cool. I also noticed with Bernie, the trench coat he was wearing is the same one from his Same meme. one from the meme. Oh, but you know what? Man. But it's, it's totally a Vermont thing. So I, I live, you know, maybe an hour and 15 minutes from the border of Vermont. I'm mm. not that far away from it at all. And if you know people up in northern New England, you only really need like the one good coat and you're going to ride that thing like a Toyota That's Camry. That's what everyone was saying on Twitter and I didn't get it. I was like, what do you mean you need one good coat? And they're like, you, just, you know, you just need one good coat. No, you need the, the one good coat. Yeah, and, and it's such like a grandpa coat that he had on too. Oh yeah. Um, it, yeah. I mean that that that's a coat that you can go to an inauguration with and right. shovel the the base of your driveway in. It's, right. It's an all purpose type of deal. So I he I commend a, the man. <laughs> he is absolutely the exception to that rule, though. Like I I'm one of those people who believes like I don't really think uh, Biden, notwithstanding that people who are born in the forties should really be dictating what's going on in the world. I don't really like that. <laughs> yeah, However, fair. like a radical like Bernie, who has always had these ideas. I remember like, uh, I, I, I followed American politics like for, Oh, 
15 years now. And I, I actually covered um, Obama's re-election when I was doing some extra journalist work at university. And I remembered like looking at Bernie at that time. And I was just like, this guy, because as an Englishman, I have a lot of the things that he's talking about. And, and you know, there's a big misconception as radical socialism. And I, and I it, it, it's not. Um, and I and I was just like, man, I know he's not going to get in, but I would vote for him every time. And, I, and he, he was the only politician I actually, when the caucuses came out, the primaries came out, I paid a lot of attention to him. Um, you know, it, it's very interesting. And, and I guess the reason for our audience, like they know I talk about politics, but the reason is that both you and I are very much, we're very passionate about uh, our political beliefs. Oh, yes. um, and if you follow either one of us on Twitter, you will see that. <laughs> and and it is an inauguration day. So I am I am making some time because I think, I think a lot of people, whether you know, we have a lot of North American listeners, and I'm sure a lot of them had anxiety about the um, inauguration. It was it was a lot of concern, sure. Sure. and I tuned in for it. And I, I imagine it was probably the most watched inauguration in in history. I would imagine. Just, I, I, just I would lockdown, think it would but, have to be. Yeah, I, yeah. I would think it would have to be. And it, yeah, I mean, for anyone who follows me on on Twitter, certainly, I don't make my uh, political beliefs silent because I, <laughs> you know, I I think in in past years. I think there was often a reason to to bite your tongue and and just, Mm. you know, equate that to the better part of valor, because Mm. you you don't necessarily want to be shouting in people's faces what you believe all the time, because that's a a real easy way for people to get real sick of you real fast. That's divisiveness, isn't it? It is. In a nutshell, yeah. Yeah. It is. But, you know, I, I think we, over the last, you know, at least 12 to 24 months have been living in, you know, a certain culture Mm. where I think it's important to have a voice for peace whenever you can have it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you can never have enough people out there promoting, you know, the, the virtues of peace and love and acceptance and togetherness mm. and unity. And you, you can never have enough of that, especially right now. So that, you yeah. know, that, that's why I try to be not, you know, overtly obnoxious about things. Cause that, that's right. silly, but, um, but you, you, you know, you're from a very like um, liberal environment and, you know, you, you have a family and I think, you know, when you're raising children, you have to set an example and it's the example of i say an example but you know there is no right and wrong as i was the example that you want to set for them and sometimes that's the way we were raised that's the environment we were brought into but i think like you know it's 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 really interesting to look at it from the last like few years because i think um that someone said to me recently um and i was having a conversation about how i didn't want i didn't want people who were really really into trump's camp to buy my stuff and they were like well that's really discriminatory and i said i I made it really simple i was like here's why i won't reach across the aisle and shake a trump supporter's hand and vote for unity on that because i still have trans friends that will still get the shit beaten out of them if they go anywhere i will still have black friends who will run the risk of being shot and being hurt when they go out i still have uh female friends who are going to be sexualized and spat on those things didn't change before Trump, and they aren't going to change afterwards. So why would I reach across the aisle to people that that are not sorry for those views? And I think like it's not it's not about like you said it's not about like being overtly aggressive and being a you know, there's no need to add confrontation to your life. You don't need to, but I don't ever think that you should have to swallow your pride because it's a family member, it's it's a family friend or whatever. Like no, like if if that person is infringing on your or other people's human rights, like. Why would you want to have them in your life? Like, you know, we got it. It's like setting examples. It's moving past that. And that's, that's like real life horror folks. Like that's, that's like the real world we live in where, you know, for all the things that I write, for all the things that we act on, like, I think we have been living in a, in a, in a horror movie, like a really weird, surreal David Lynchian horror yeah. movie for two years. Yeah, we definitely have. And I, you know, it's funny too, that you talk about setting an example for kids. Cause I, you know, I, my wife and I do have two uh, young boys mm. and you, you know, I, I don't necessarily consider myself the example for 
my kids in this house. And, and mm-hmm. you and I have, have discussed this uh, before, as you so covertly slid into my Twitter DMs, um, <laughs> that, you know, my, my wife is, is a nurse. And, mm-hmm. you know, so we have a, a very unique uh, view of everything that's gone on, you know, especially over the last 12 months with the pandemic Absolutely. going on and everything. And so, you know, I think the example that we set for our kids doesn't necessarily come from me. Cause look, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in entertainment, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, she's, she's the backbone of this family and I'm the first mm-hmm. person to admit that. And she's the person who sets the example for our boys. And mm. I think, you know, going out there and advocating for the right things, advocating for people who don't necessarily have a voice or have not had mm-hmm. a voice and mm-hmm. using her platform of, of public health to, you know, really promote the right things. I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's how we try to transfer these, you know, positive, peaceful beliefs onto our kids and, you know, hopefully to others as well. And, and again, it's not, right. it's not sound, it's not me or her trying to sound preachy. It's just saying, look, <laughs> you know, she has this really unique up close example mm-hmm. um, and up close view of what this pandemic has done to us. Yeah. She's you know? on the front lines. And I think like, you know, it reminds me, and, I, and I've said it on, I actually did a disclaimer on this show about how grateful I was for the NHS, the National Health Service we have here. Um, and I really hope at the end of this that that is what, something that could be on the table when, when this is all said and done. And I think it will be you know, in a really weird way, because the reason we had the NHS, one of our, our greatest prime ministers, Clement Attlee, um, Labour, Labour Party prime minister, he set it up after World War II because we had more people injured and dead uh, and, and, you know, 90, 96% of London was destroyed in the Blitz. We were just devastated, absolutely devastated. You, I think Americans lost more, but we lost more of our home. And um, and it was set up, and, and that was it. And no one complained. And the and every time they talk about taking it away, I, I mean, our government has definitely tried, but but our, we would riot. And I think that's where I'd, I'd love to see people. And I think, like, it's, it's, it's important on any show, including this one, which... Yes, it's about talking to people in the horror world, but like I think it's it's impossible to get away from these things. But also to thank those frontline workers. Um, you know, it is not an easy world to go out in, and I know why we have frontline workers who listen to this show. Um, and I, and I I don't want it to be. I think it's the one thing in this world, or one of many things, but it shouldn't be virtue signaling. Like we should be thanking them regardless of the day, the week, because when you see it up close, and you know these people are tired, they're exhausted. Um, hundred hour work weeks for very little money. Um, it's, it's rough. So I think, yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a way to like, you know, mention like setting an example, like, you know, cause kids are living through this right now. They, yeah. they, they are living through a pandemic. Yeah. I and, mean, and we, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm living in a world where we're now what, a, you know, 10 months into, mm-hmm. you know, fairly full lockdown here in the United States. And, mm. you know, my sons have each missed a birthday at this point. We've had to do virtual birthdays and, yeah. You know, they, they've, you know, barely been in school. Mm. You know, they, they go like half days a couple times a week, but that's not, you know, real full it's not school. Enough. No. It's not the same thing. No. And so there are, you know, a lot of social impacts that they, you know, are, are dealing with right now where they just don't have the normal social growth that, that children would normally have. So, you know, mm-hmm. as a dad, I worry about that stuff every of day. Course. It's natural um, for them to be socializing. That's what yeah, we do as creatures. Yeah, and it's scary, yeah. man. It's mm. so yeah. To your point, I mean, you know, to anyone listening to this, if you know a doctor, a nurse, an EMT, someone in frontline healthcare work, mm. uh, and you know, you you haven't said it to them lately, just thank them once. Yeah, yeah. they they've they've seen more than you know over the last mm. year, and it's I it's, give them space because really, I'm sure they're tired. Yeah. Oh my you know god! I mean? Like 
exhausted and it's trying like i I, I, I think more than anything else if they get a thank you they don't want an elongate one they want to be said thanks and let them sleep oh um, yeah yeah don't make it a monologue <laughs> for god's sake but <laughs> but yeah so um how is like your role because obviously you you're in and you're in the entertainment business as, mm. as as i am and uh i i was lucky that i didn't have to adjust heavily um prior to the pandemic i i had a little setup and I, all i've done is grow grow it since then has the switch been difficult for you because of the family life around that or has it been a relatively easy transition um you know my my home setup doesn't change too much especially with with regards to the no sleep podcast because i mean we we all record at home anyway mm-hmm. um so i i think the biggest change has come around in terms of just scheduling on everyone's individual end because mm. it, you know i a, I work from home now full time until we're all vaccinated and we go back in. So, you know, mm-hmm. I can like, you know, record on my lunch break now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my wife also works a little bit more now, too. So I'm with the kids more often. So I have right. to, you know, really kind of plan out my week and say, OK, right. if I get a rule for no sleep on Wednesday and I have to turn this thing in by Sunday, when in that period do I have to feasibly sit down and record for two hours? Mm-hmm. Because because, you know, for those who aren't familiar with uh, the, the kind of process for a no sleep voice actor, it's. You know, we have to sit down and record our audio, but then we also have to chop it up and take out the bad takes and submit a really yeah. nice, polished, condensed uh, audio file into our producers who I can only assume wave some sort of a magic wand and out comes a podcast. I don't but, know what uh, Phil and Jeff do, um, <laughs> but it's magical. Like, it, like, like, like Jeff will go out like yeah. and he, he'll be like, I just produced this episode. And I'm just sitting there going, I know how long you had for that. How did you? How that, I'm seeing it with like staring at my Adobe, going, "Why can't you do that?" Like, yeah, yeah. you know, I've also seen if you guys haven't seen Phil Michaelski's setup, it is just it Feels is crazy. beautiful. <laughs> oh, it as a musician, it makes me so jealous. Like, oh, same, same. So, for anyone who doesn't know, um, for the OC podcast, uh, all the foley you you hear is Phil actually doing it in house. I don't think that, uh, if there is any like existing stock, it's very rarely used, and Phil's like gone to the nth degree to produce original stuff. And I mean, when you're the leader, when you're the market leader in that world, you kind of have to do that. Like, you know, Brandon, Brandon is an unsung hero. I mean, he, he's just literally, we just released the first fully um, orchestrated version of the mythos. And, and, and we're using some work he's done originally, some, some uh, previously, but that guy produces 20 songs every single week. And and I'm and I hear that, and as a as a vocalist, predominantly, I'm just thinking I can't sing twenty original songs a week. Hell no! Like, no, and I, how and I want do people to understand too, because Brandon's probably my best friend from the podcast. We text all the time. Oh, he's a lovely and guy, and he's he's a wonderful guy. And people need to understand too; he's not a trained musician. Like he mm. just broke into this in I think in the last you know five six years or yeah, so something like somewhere that. around yeah. that. Yeah. And so he's he's trained himself up from nothing up into this amazingly polished composer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just the gravity and enormity of effort and work and talent that has to go in uh, to to that ascension is mind boggling. So, yeah. it, I mean, it, you know, go out and listen to his stuff on Spotify. Listen to his work on the podcast. I mean, it's really oh, just yeah. it's yeah, he's, or on Bandcamp. Absolutely. Wild. And yeah. when you when you did, I mean, we'll get into the nitty gritty Parker podcast. But when you start producing mm. that um, in house, because you start doing that uh, two years ago, you just finished your second season, right? Yeah. So I let's see. I started writing Parker in 2016. We put out the first episode of the first season in late 17. 
Oh, wow. And then, yeah, yeah. It was so a long three, time three ago. years for the pilot and then two years for the full launch. So when you yeah. started doing original music, because I, I, I went back and um, I, I binged half of season one. And I love the incidental music. And obviously, um, you are, you're a classically trained musician um, mm. and um, you, you know compositional pieces, but you're a pianist first and foremost. Um, and, and it's clear um, when you were doing the incidental music around your, um, your monologues, like you knew the tone and you knew the pacing and the, and the dynamics, which all of that is stuff that you have to, is trial and error. Because oh, the yeah. amount of times people will do something and it'll be a beautiful piece, it'll be in the wrong scene, it'll be too loud, it'll sound too sketchy. And, yeah. and you, you know, you were like, the fact you did that in your early seasons tells me that you went through a lot of like trial and error for it. Did you guys like, go to the No Sleep podcast and talk to Brandon before kind of going in there? Or did you have a good sense of what you wanted to do for that? So uh, it's funny, people have asked me that before. I actually started writing and come uh, writing the script for uh, the first couple episodes of Parker and composing part of it before mm. I emailed David to join No Sleep. Really? So it was so here here's here's the genesis of it. And I, I think I've only said this in like one interview, but it it's kind of okay. cool. So I wanted to so back in like 2015 16, I was kind of mm-hmm. like stuck in a rut in like my creative career. So okay. I had been a musician all the way up through uh, college and then a few years afterwards so we're saying maybe through like 2007 ish and okay. that's where i was juggling being like you know in a band and doing like live performance and all that sort of stuff mm. and you know after that i i just you know got more into like my you know day job work and really you know just bought a yeah. house and got married and you had a baby and yada 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 so you know life just kind of evolves and, and rolls along with you and you know we we get to, to 2015 and i was uh, kind of itching to get back into this and i said mm-hmm. to my wife i'm like look I think I kind of want to like write something and I kind of mm. enjoy podcasts. So I think I'm going to go ahead and write a podcast. And she goes, okay, do you know if you're any good at it? And I said, no, no, I do not. So, so she goes, all right, well, why don't you like try to audition for something and, mm. you know, see if you're okay at it. And then if so, maybe that takes off and then you might have the confidence to go and produce your own thing after that. I was like, all right, that, that sounds fairly reasonable. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote the first episode of, of Parker, the, the pilot episode. And I was like, all right. Um, at that point, I had been a fan of two podcasts that I listened to. And I only listened to two of them. It was mm-hmm. The Black Tapes and oh, No God, Sleep. So good. Yeah. And I knew the, the Black Tapes already had kind of like a beginning and end. That was a story. I, I knew mm-hmm. there really wasn't an opportunity for me to get in there. And plus, they're based out in like Vancouver. I wasn't going to go out there. I'm in Boston. That just it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so I was like, all right. Well, I also love the No Sleep podcast. And it's not mm-hmm. really, you know, this like continuous story. It's an anthology. So mm-hmm. so I, I emailed David Cummings, uh, God, five years ago now, which is wacky. Wild. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's insane. <laughs> What is time, um, man? Uh, it goes oh, too quick. It doesn't exist. Whole separate podcast <laughs> that we could talk about. But, um, people think I'm batshit crazy now. Um, so anyway, I ended up emailing David and I said, look, you know, it, here's something that I recorded from the No Sleep subreddit. I understand if this completely uh, stinks in your eyes, but if you do have any openings, feel free to, to you know, give me a, a holler back. He mm. emailed me back the same day. Um, which had <laughs> nothing to do with the quality of my performance. It has to do with the quality of his character. Yeah. Um, really? It, yeah. It, it really does. And I, I've said this a million times before, and I will say mm. it a million times more until the day I die. Mm. David Cummings is the warmest, nicest person I've ever met. Yep. I mean, I, I don't think an, an episode goes by 
like unintentionally as it is. It's actually, there's a couple who don't know David we have, but like whenever it comes to that, like, and people must think like, oh, there must be like, they're being paid. Like I, I have said this, like David's my boss. Like he, he refers to me as his, as his colleague, but he's my boss. And, um, you know, uh, full disclosure, like, um, uh, we, we've had like, um, we had a really rough time, one of the audio productions and I, and I do not like letting people down. Like we do a 50, 50 on the editing. Um, and when there's an obstacle, there's an obstacle. It, it happens like in, or in production. Um, it could be that a file gets corrupted, editing goes long, wh- whatever it is. And, um, I hate letting people down and I felt so guilty and I've been with like, uh, I've worked with people who have been very problematic and, you know, have tempers and, and I'm very level headed. And yet every time, every single time there's been a problem, David just, just is just chill. He's so understanding and patient. And when you're working with someone, when you're collaborating with someone twice a week, every week, um, that is so important like that it's trust, but it's also like working relationships live and die based on how well you gel and how you deal with obstacles. Um, you know, I, I couldn't, can't say enough good things and he's going to hear this, but like, you know, I cannot say enough good things. And I think like, you know, he, he's one of those people. And I think the best kind of producers and directors and collaborators make you want to do more like, because we've all been in a, in a role, we've all been in a job. Like everyone's had a shitty job with a, with a manager, with a fucking stick up their ass who is just there to, to, to lord, lord it over to you. And then they wonder why you don't come in. And it's, sometimes it's not because yeah. you're getting paid enough, but a lot of the time, if you, you know, as a social creature, if we don't want to work with someone, no matter how nice and patient you are, you'll find reasons to not go in and you'll do, you'll do less than what you want to do. Whereas when you know you've got a good colleague in, a good buddy in on a fucking graveyard shift, you will work overtime to, to, to get it done. And that is really important ethos. And you can't, you can't teach that. No, no, you can't. And, and, you know, the thing is too, you know, people assume that we're all these like, you know, seasoned trained voice actors and all that, (laughs) you know, when, when I and and many of my no sleep castmates started out, you know, we were so green and so Mm -hmm. raw. And, uh, you know, I still remember back the, the very first uh, narration I recorded was a story uh, called She Endure by a, good guy called uh, named Keith McDuffie. And Mm -hmm. so I read this thing through and, you know, looking back, it was just fucking terrible. And (laughs) David didn't get frustrated with me and he didn't tell me to go to hell. We have enough voice actors, but he, Mm. he, he sent me this really nice, helpful critique back. He said, look, you did this, this, and this really well. I think, especially considering our audience who, is, you know, obviously a horror community. They're expecting this type of pace yeah. with this type of inflection. And you need to, to really focus on your technique here and here. Mm. And so I, I took that to heart and I said, okay. And, mm. you know, five years later, I haven't been fired yet, which is great. <laughs> um, so I think I've gotten marginally better, if, if at all. But, um, <laughs> but, but the point is that he, he had enough patience at the time to really say, look, mm. this is this kid's first try at it. Um, yeah. I'm not going to completely blow up at him, which is really just the sign of a a beautifully mature leader. Hi, everyone. It's TJ from the future wishing you good tidings and hoping your neck of the woods is safe from dark creatures. I really hope you're enjoying this week's Table Read with Dan. It truly is something unique. I want to just bend your ear for a moment about my sister show The Writer's Mythos and a slight change to our schedule. The Writer's Mythos is a bi-weekly scripted deep dive into authors from across history. We look at their lives, triumphs, downfalls, and everything in between. With music by No Sleep Podcast's Brandon Boone, and the voices of our chosen writers before my voice actors like David Alt, 
Peter Joseph Lewis, Mick Wingert, our guest Lydian Zapula, Erica Sanderson, and more. The writer's mythos is sure to be an experience you're bound to not only remember, but be enriched by. During 2020, we've covered sci-fi icon Mary Shelley, King of the Macabre Stephen King, feminist icon Angela Carter, manga sensation Junji Ito, childhood nightmare bringer R.L. Stein, gothic powerhouse Edgar Allan Poe, and the man behind Cthulhu, H.P. Lovecraft. In our final outing of 2020, I teamed up with Shadows at the Door creator Mark Nixon to cover the pioneer of the modern ghost tale, M.R. James. To kick off 2021, we covered the strange and polarizing life of Charles Dickens, including his fateful train accident that would inspire the signalman, and our latest episode was something truly special. Releasing on Inauguration Day with an underlying message of the importance of unity, we looked at Joe Hill. Not only the son of the reigning monarch of horror, but an unbelievably talented, nuanced, and truly terrifying author in his own right. This is also our first episode to contain full music by Brandon Boone, and I cannot wait for you all to hear it. Now to kick off Women's History Month over here on The Mythos, our February 3rd entry will be looking at the woman behind the lottery and the haunted house concept, Shirley Jackson. Then, on February 17th, we look at the mind behind some of Hitchcock's best works and the novelist of the hit film Rebecca, Dame Daphne du Maurier. Find out more by following us on Twitter at Writers Mythos and give us a wave, a review, and maybe recommend us to your friends. We are always looking to add to the cult. The Writers Mythos, a production by TJ Lee and David Cummings, releases every other Wednesday. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you may get your podcasts. Mm. You know, and that's the yeah. thing. Like, I mean, I, I've only been back in the voice acting realm for seven, eight months now, and you know, um, even doing doing the mythos, like getting that advice is invaluable. Like, I mean, I, I we had a conversation like two, three weeks ago, and it was just like these are the things that you could do to improve the way your flow, and it's like you know you have to learn because the only way you're going to get better, you know, and and the, and you know, it's when you have a podcast, any podcast that starts to rack in the numbers and starts to get into those rankings where you're in the top two hundred of anything. More people are paying attention. You cannot afford to have those kinds of mistakes and the lack of polish because people pick up on it. Um, oh, yeah. And and in the Parker podcast, um, you know, from the reviews and the community it's built, like it it really was like a, a a big hit very quickly. And I think it's because of the the concept that you had around it. And I don't want to spoil too much of it. So what I'm going to try and do because I want people to go over to it is I'm going to we'll talk about the basic premise without getting into heavy plot details because. What is really interesting about this, and I think what makes it stand out, you know, I've been listening to podcasts, to consuming podcasts for a long time, and there are, I've got some favorites, I've heard of some stinkers, but when a product presents itself in a way where you don't know where the line is between this is a fictitious presentation, this is a realistic presentation, you you get naturally gain intrigue. That's a good story, because now you're talking about, well, you know, you are presenting yourself as Dan Sapula. And so people are like, oh, right. okay. And, and you know, <laughs> yeah, right, even, even right. little things, yeah, even little things like, you know, one thing, having, you know, done documentaries before, one of the one love things I love cold, I love cold opens. I'm a big, big fan of cold opens and I love cold introductions. So when you have someone just do a little line and you go, this is so-and-so and it's like, mm, mm, that's that shit I like. Cold opens are fucking so amazing. <laughs> you I clearly just, like, I adore them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it well, it, it sets a press, it sets a tone um, it's, it's a, it's a really good like storytelling technique as well, because you introduce a character without any kind of like buffer and it takes people off guard. So when you, when you introduce your dad, 
I was just, I, would, I was like driving, I just laughed at my ass. I was just like, okay. And then your description of it like adds credence to that. So the way that you structured it was very clearly like in this frame of this is, this is my life. This is something that happened. And when you scripted that out and you were storyboarding that, because I've never tried something like this, but did you, did you kind of have like a timeline of how you were going to do script to script? Like, so episode one, you would have interview one, interview two, monologue, oh, yeah. monologue. Yeah. So it was, so it, it, it kind of narrowed down as I went, right? So the, the original mm. storyboard for season one was not entirely different, but it was pretty different. I, I didn't get to the point where I ever felt like the show was actually going to work until mm-hmm. I changed the main character from this fictional person to me. Okay. And the, the and the reason I did so I originally had him named, I, I forget what it was like, John something else or James something else, but I was going to play someone else. But I think the problem mm. with that was by the time this thing will have come out, I was on no sleep for a year and a half already. Right. And no one was going to buy that I was this fictional guy because they already knew Because your voice is recognizable. Exactly. Yeah. They, anyone who was listening to John Parker, 90% of that audience came there because David Cummings asked them to in the intro of a no sleep episode. <laughs> they already knew yeah. who I was, you know? <laughs> so I, I had to, you know, but six months into writing the first season, I said, wait, I, I had to completely just stop and say, look, I had to be honest with myself and say, look, the only way this is going to ever work is if I make them believe that this actually happened to me. And mm-hmm. so that started snowballing and saying, okay, well, if I'm actually going to play a fictional version of myself, how far can I actually take this? So right. I cast yeah. my actual wife as Rachel, my yes. wife on the show. Yeah. My mom and Which my dad insane. on the show <laughs> are my actual yeah. parents in real life. Um, mm-hmm. They very clearly, if you listen to the show, are not seasoned voice actors. But, but they I sound didn't want legit, them to though. sound like it. They, and that's exactly it. It's yeah. because if you ever record your parents in any sort of voice acting medium, they're supposed to sound terrible. Mm. I didn't want them sounding professional because you know that's not them. If, mm-hmm. if you took anyone's random mom and put a microphone in front of her, she'll freeze up. Yeah. No one's going to yeah. believe that shit, you know? Yeah. So I wanted yeah. her in all of her, you know, North Shore, Boston accent glory. And Lovely just, <laughs> it, it is, it's this weird mix between <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> between Boston and Ted Kennedy. It's really weird uh, where people, <laughs> it's, you, you, you know, exactly what I mean when I say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so pe- people from a certain era around this part of the country have this strange, uh, like JFK affect to them where they pronounce mm. certain words a little bit differently. Like, you know, I say bathroom, but my mom consistently has said bathroom her entire life, even though she is not from London at all. Mm-hmm. But that's what she says. She mm-hmm. it, So anyway, she doesn't sound as trashy as I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so self-deprecating. Can't help I yourself. Am. It's it's part of the charm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, but, so when, when I'm writing this thing, I, I had to, uh, back to the storyboard question, it, the main thing I wanted to get to was, okay, how can I take myself from presenting this murder mystery into this twist at the end of the first season? And I, I obviously sure. won't, won't give away what the end of the first season is, but how do I get from here to here? And, and the funny part is, is that I completely kind of put myself at risk because I published the first seven episodes without writing the end of the season. And wow. yeah, I know. Jeez. And it was really stupid. Yeah. Um, risky. <laughs> I, I had, I had this like stupid blind faith in myself that I'm like, you'll mm. come up with the connection. 
And so I got to the point seven episodes into this thing where I'm like, okay, how am I going to tie this in now? And I, and I, I kid you not, I sat in front of Wikipedia for days trying to figure out a logistical medicinal solution <laughs> for how this could have made sense. And I found something. Kind okay. Of. <laughs> it's lucid best. what did you what did you research like to kind of get to that conclusion was it something where there'd been a case of it actually happening like that no so okay so john parker himself is a combination of a couple things so number one it's a it's a combination of my dad who is a psychologist um okay. and in number two it, it it's every dateline episode you've ever seen um right. not as hokey but mm. and so in, in my in my combination of those two entities and in my searching through Wikipedia, I, I stumbled upon this uh, strange drug slash flower called the Atropa Belladonna, which is okay. only mentioned once in the show, but it's the tie-in for the entire season. It's mentioned in one sure. of the Christmas mini-episodes in season one. And mm. it was the only thing, and again, if anyone's not listened to it, maybe earmuffs for the next ten seconds. Um, <laughs> it was the only thing that could cover up the scent of something else in mm. order to, again, without giving it away. It was a uh, natural substance that could cover up the scent or tracking of, of something else. So I worked okay. it into the overall kind of like, you know, arc of the storyline. Mm. Now, the real problem came in where we finished up season one. I kind of sort of explained how we got from point A to point B. But the mm -hmm. pain in the ass of it is that I didn't really regress time at all. I just showed you how we got through okay. like, you know two weeks of this story, but nothing this really is a framing device, right? Yeah, that's all it mm, was. Mm. And so I said, all right, I said to myself, if I'm ever going to do a season two, I don't want to pick up right where this thing left off. Mm. I need to go in an entirely different direction. I knew that the ratings and reviews of that show were going to plummet as soon as I published season two. And they okay. did. And I knew that right off the bat. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, I, and I was okay with that. Uh-huh. Because I knew that the story I was telling in season two was A, out of the box, B, creative, and, and C, it was sound. Okay. It, there are a lot of subtleties in season two that mm. no, one are, no one's ever going to pick up on. And I don't say that out of any sort of, like, obnoxiousness. <laughs> I say that because I did them very subtly on purpose. Okay. In that I wanted to make season two a study of that person's dying brain. Mm. And I don't believe this spoils anything in season one, but season two is really a, a first person study into how someone is slowly fading away and suffering with dementia. Okay. And everything that you hear in season two should be taken with a grain of salt because it's from that perspective. And See, I, I admire that, though. I admire that you knew you were going to have a plummet um, on, 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 on listener retention, and yet you did it anyway, which, you know, again, this is a passion project for you. You know, it was something that, you know, you weren't doing for money, you weren't doing for clout, you were doing to prove that you could do it. And, and because, you like any writer and career, you had an idea and you wanted to see it through. That is like... One of the hardest things to do, though, to separate the ego and to go, you know what? I'm not really bothered if I lose people. This is how I want it to go. Because I think, like, as a creator, when you try and do something that is not what's in your head and you're like, no, I'm going to go with this thing that's safe, 
one that's going to that's going to be difficult because we're really really stubborn we don't lose the three-year-old petulance version of ourselves it just lives in our amygdala and comes out occasionally says no you're not doing that no no you're not doing that and the other thing is it'll come out shit if you're if you can if you can force an idea and it comes out great then lucky you most times you try to create something whether it's procrastination not feeling well or god forbid you, you you're doing an idea you don't want to do it doesn't come out well you might as well just go for what you think is right and yeah, it I, works. I, I totally agree. And so th- there's a there's a there's a bit of a monologue in the fifth episode of uh, of the show uh, given by a, a character named Edward Hammond, who's this uh, funeral director played by the, mm-hmm. the wonderful uh, Atticus Jackson of No Sleep fame. Who's a we love Atticus. I love Atticus, too. He's a, a dear buddy of mine. And no, no one else could have played this guy except for him. He just has this mm. like weird brooding tone about his voice. Mm, he's very gritty. He's very. He gritty. Is. He's like. He's like. You got Peter Joseph Lewis, which is like, like, like. I no pun intended, but he's noir gritty. Yes. And then you got Atticus, which is like. Uh, he has that almost like um, stoic kind of yes. grittiness, where like he could play a biker in a bar, but he could also be the guy that's like giving you your last rites. You know, he's got a really you know very beautiful unusual kind of grip to it absolutely and and i, I wrote the part around him because i i knew this thing was just like meant for him mm. and so this there's this monologue that he gives as we're sitting down in the basement of the funeral home and edward is talking to my character dan and and this is a theme throughout the show where i actually just get out my inner angst in all these different characters okay. um so so he he gives this monologue where he says something to the effect of the one time a man really has the chance to be satisfied with his life is when he's sitting on his deathbed and he has one moment to reflect on the full body of his life's accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that idea was both beautiful and incredibly sad at the exact same time. It's terrifying. It is because you're working your entire life to amass this body of work that you can be proud of. Mm-hmm. And you always feel like you have something left in the tank. And the only time you really feel like okay i have nothing left to give is mm. right before the whole thing ends and and sometimes not even then i mean yeah and sometimes not even then people, right a lot of people who for whatever reason maybe they don't know they're dying that's always a big one but but people who are mm-hmm. just very defiant who are like mm-hmm. no nah, i got more to give and 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 there's both there's two ways of looking at that as there is with anything in the world i mean you put five human beings in an elevator you'll have seven opinions but you know there are people <laughs> who who want to just keep fighting and they're not fighting because they think they can win they're fighting because that's their nature yeah um and and i think look at the creative minds we've had from from all man all walks of life from science and from um uh from the arts they're always going to have something more and i'm sure if you gave them an extension if you gave them a reprieve and said you know you got another year yes they would produce something more but almost in this (laughs) almost wanky kind of way of looking at art there has to be a finite point. Everything must end. It is the law of all things. And yet, it's also not, because the first law of thermodynamics is no energy is created, none is destroyed. So mm-hmm. things must end, but they also mustn't end, which, again, is wanky, um, because now I'm just coming off like a fucking new age guru, like <laughs> sitting there saying that, you know, you should let sunlight into your anus. But, you know, art, art mu- becomes stagnant if the same people do the same things and they and they don't do anything different no matter how much an artist wants to vary themselves wants to think outside the box they are within they're in, they're in a bigger box it's like it's like russian doll boxes like yeah. 
an artist will grow exponentially, in my opinion. A writer does the same thing, and every artist does the same thing. They start off in this tiny box. Actually, no, they probably don't start in any box because they're children, and children tend to be really infinite with their ideas. The box gets smaller the older they get because expectations and other priorities, puberty, and then they have to break out of that box. But I almost feel like it's it's like the Truman Show. There's always going to be some bigger glass ceiling, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine because there are people like, I mean, look at... um, I mean, gosh, let me think of... Stephen King's a perfect example. Fuck, I don't know I'm thinking too hard about this. Stephen King finds that glass ceiling. He just smashes it and carries on. But he will eventually reach that end of it. And it probably won't be for lack of creativity. It'll be death. Sure, And, and that's that's fine. That, you know, but it's, it's really interesting when you talk about it. And I love that line, like the idea of like, when we reach that end point, or we think we've reached that end point, every human being takes a period of reflection. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. horror does a, I mean, obviously I realize that Parker podcast is not horror, but existentialism to me is a very real part of that. Anxiety. Yes. Comes into, it's a very real part of that. And because, because of the way I was brought up, I don't find concepts of hell terrifying because it doesn't exist to me. So what I find terrifying is this notion that no one will remember you when you're dead. And it, 100%. That's so yes. scary. That's so fucking you know, it's, scary. It's so funny because that's exactly what I was going to come back with in saying that. <laughs> so horror to me, the reason why I I loved writing John Parker and the reason mm-hmm. why I love being on No Sleep is because horror is something different to everybody. And right. to me, it's the finite nature of my life without leaving something lasting behind. And so Big that's fan. part mm-hmm. of the reason why... I, I wrote Parker. It's because I want that thing live forever. It's a legacy. Um, it, it is. I'm yeah. obsessed with my legacy. And yeah. it, which is, we again, because I'm only in my 30s. It's like you wouldn't think, you know, somebody of this age would be obsessed with a legacy. But I am. I always am. I have and, been since I was 19 years old. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's not indicative of age. It's, it's just down to how con... I mean, this isn't being mean to people who are ignorant. I, I actually wish I didn't think about it that much. I really do. Same. Because it's, it's all-consuming. But it's just down to how you're wired. And I think there's also this misconception, you know, I don't have children, but there's a misconception that, you know, children are your legacy and they are everything to parents. Of Mm. course they are. Mm -hmm. That's why we do it. One of the reasons we have kids is something of us carries on. Mm -hmm. I think that it's incorrect, though, to think that that's the be all end all, because there's there's been especially, you know, it's getting a bit away from us now in the 2010s, but and 2020s, but there was this idea that when you had kids, that was it. Like, you, suddenly you're no longer a person. <laughs> and and yeah. yes, obviously, you give everything to your children. That is the point. Otherwise, why be a parent? But the idea that you can't do your own thing anymore, that you don't have autonomy and you can't create, is very bizarre to me. Um, you know, I don't know if I would ever have yeah. children, but certainly, if I ever did, they would be everything. They would be priority one. But why would I stop writing? Why would I stop making things because I, otherwise I'd cease to be happy. Yeah. You know, I, I think it, it, it has to be a good marriage of both, right? It's mm. you, you want to be a doting parent always, and you want to give all of yourself to your kids, but at the same time, you can't give all of yourself mm. to your kids because, because then there's nothing left for, for anyone else, including yourself. Yeah. And I don't believe it's selfish to still want to pursue your own dreams in accordance with being a good parent because Mm -hmm. they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Well, if you can make that a better thing for your family, then the better. And I think children, the older we get, the more we forget how perceptive children are and they notice things. And if they notice that their parents aren't happy and not fulfilled, it it has a detrimental effect on them. Bingo. I know. I Um, I totally agree. And that, and that's why, you know, 
I take such pride in what I do. And I, mm. I, I make sure that they notice, you know, when I come down in my studio in the basement down here, like my, my sons notice when I come down here and spend a few nights a week down here working on whatever it is dad's working mm. on. And they, they see the long hours that my wife works and they know that the passion and love that she puts into her work is, is genuine. Mm. Uh, I want them to see that to, to me, that's the greatest thing that we can pass on to our kids is yeah. putting passion into what you do and putting passion into the right things that uh, mm-hmm. help enrich your life and enrich someone else's life. Hopefully, right. hopefully. And you know, it, it, I think we we've reached a, a point at least, you know, I don't know if this is a point in society, but at least a point for me where mm. I don't want my kids to be an extension of me. I want my kids no, to I learn from, the positive aspects of me and then force their own path. Right. Because they're not, you're not yeah. living vicariously through them and they're not living vicariously through you. That's right. And I have no yeah. doubt that my kids will surpass whatever it is. I, I, you know, end up accomplishing in my life mm. uh, because they're far smarter and more creative than I am. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I want to set my kids up to do better than I did. Whatever that yeah. better ends up being in whatever field in whatever way. I want their satisfaction with their lives to supersede the generation before. I trust you're all enjoying our table reading with the magnificent Dan Zapula. Good. Before we continue on, I want to clue you in on Dan's podcast. And if you're a true crime junkie, this is absolutely the show for you. On July 3rd, 2015, psychiatrist and local celebrity Dr. John Parker was found dead in his Mashpee, Massachusetts office. His death was ruled an apparent suicide, but his son-in-law, Dan Sapula, doesn't buy it. Dan thinks he was murdered, and he's out to prove it. Join us on this journey through Cape Cod and New England as we search for the truth behind the death of Dr. John Parker. The show has just finished its second season, and it's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. The truth is out there, but will perception become reality? Learn more at parkerpodcast.com. And with that, we dim the lights and lift the veil to rejoin Dan one last time. And legacy, legacy is a part of that and, and bringing it full circle. But, you know, the, the fear of that, the fear of it just, you know, ending. I think that's, that's in a way it's, you know, yes, it's, yes, it's comforting. But it's also terrifying. The idea that, like, you know, you go back to what it was pre-you existing. <laughs> and that's yeah. like, yeah, but that's so fucking horrifying. <laughs> and, and the reason it is, is consciousness pushes you past that point of like, well, I exist. I enjoy. I love. I hate. I, I feel unhappy. I feel, I, feel, I feel elated. So you, you look at something. Like, I remember that. That's really fun. And then... The, the second thought when you're an anxiety person is like, you're going to die someday and not have that anymore. It's like, thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, so so I think we're fighting against that notion of we just don't know. We have no idea what's out there afterwards. We don't know. No. And that's one of the great journeys. But I think because of that, and, and some people, are even if they know in their hearts that heaven exists or whatever, they still want to do something legacy-wise. And and it's it's a really interesting thing. One of, one of my favorite things that's like non-horror but horror, much like that, speech is bojack horseman's speech um at his funeral at his mother's funeral mm-hmm. if you i mean I, it's a really popular i'm sure people have seen it if you haven't seen it you want to just watch something out of context forget all the self-aggrandizing hateful bullshit 
that Bojack says that gets retweeted, it, that's not interesting to me. What's interesting is that it, it is a monologue. It is Will Arnett doing some of the most beautiful, heart-wrenching voice acting and talking at his mother's eulogy. Um, and just, it, it was amazing to watch because it was like the way he hit the nail on the head and just, just captured that essence of, we're all just terrified. Whether we admit it or not, whether we show it or not, and it comes out in our writing and it came out in yours and you know horror like there's different kinds of horror out there we've talked about on the show many times but like you know yes there's the the horror of being slashed up oh that's not pleasant i don't want to be slashed <laughs> well i also don't want to get cholera but it doesn't scare me right like right, you right. know that's to i get it i wrote honk if you're hungry so i i'm putting my hands <laughs> in the air like i wrote about a meat clown and creepy food and you know that doesn't scare me but it sure scared people like everyone's flavor is different but what the things that have scared me the most to witness and to experience and to write are really dealing with that notion of like when you have no control over something when you you know when you look at the long road ahead of you and it's like you've got a beautiful life and then you've got no white light it's just blackness right. it's you know that right. is like the the and 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 I think like when you let your work speak for yourself. So when you you talked about your anxiety, like where did you let that anxiety come out in your work? Where did Parker Podcast display? Oh god, because that's a very honest thing for a you know for a man to say. And it's it's a good thing in this day and age, men being more open about those things. But it's still a rarity to yeah. have that level of honesty I mean, in your work. I I see, and you know maybe this comes from a guy again who grew up as a, a son of a psychologist, but because <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I grew up with it right in my face. Um, <laughs> but I mean, just to say it clearly, and I think this needs to, to be said, there is no shame in having anxiety in your life. Mm -hmm. We're all nervous about something. We are all stressed about something. We are all yep. anxious about something. Uh, you know, I happen to be anxious about a lot of things. Um, yeah. and at the same time, there's, you know, there is no shame and there is no detriment in treating that like any other condition. I've, oh. I've, I've had therapy in my life and I'm not ashamed mm -hmm. of that at all. Mm -hmm. um, I find myself to be a better person having gone through that. I think everyone uh, should go through it to some degree at some point, absolutely. even like one or two sessions. You yeah. learn ugly things about yourself, but through those ugly things, you learn how to walk away from it, how to, how to move past them. Yeah. There's like it's, a lot of things that are just under that surface that you're just like, oh, I'm not that bad. And then it's like, you're not that bad, but it could be. <laughs> you could you be, don't but you don't look know. After yeah. And, and look, there's, there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to be a more complete, better version of me. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there, there's, there's beauty in that. And I think, mm. you know, Parker for me was one of those outlets where I got to use all these different types of people that were in the back recesses of my mind, like this, yeah. you know, the, <laughs> this like rich dying psychologist <laughs> and <laughs> this, this odd funeral director and this mother-in-law who is an occasional alcoholic and, you know, all this, <laughs> you know, these weird caricatures of people that, mm. you know, are all just like little bits of me coming out and it's little right. bits of, of my anxious brain coming out and saying, you know, this is what goes on in my head and all these voices are speaking to me simultaneously and I'm okay with that. So I hope you are too. Right, and yeah. all writing is just a reflection of oneself. When we monologue, no matter if it's even our opposite views, there's parts of us that are coming out. Like, it can't be helped, you know. Mm. Um, you have some reflection of you coming out there, I and mean, it might be it's just a reflection of, this is what I don't like, or this is what I do like. It doesn't have to be this, you're not making a massive statement with everything, but, you know, you're only drawing from your own 
you know, personal experiences and, and sides yourself. Like, was there anything in Parker that you wrote where you were like, you had to take a step back and you were like, okay, I put that down or, or when you recorded it, like, like a, like a moment of true realness hits you. Um, yeah, there were a few. I mean, I, I think definitely Edward's monologue that was down in the funeral basement was one. I knew as soon as I wrote that, that was the best thing I wrote in the entire season. I, I knew mm. that right off the bat. Mm. Um, there are little dribs and drabs where Rachel just puts Dan in his place <laughs> that are 100% real reflections of my life. And I say that in the most positive way, mm. um, mm. because I, I put that as a mirror to, to, <laughs> to to make it obvious to anyone else who wasn't aware of it that women are the rock of of our society and of our world and mm-hmm. if i mean if you didn't know you do now uh it's it's in it's fiction it's in non-fiction <laughs> yeah it's no surprise yeah. We, yeah. women are the bedrock of everything that we do and everything that we will continue to be mm-hmm. um and I, I think the uh, you know the it's funny too because you know when you're writing you you want to sit down and be like man I'm gonna write something so fucking awesome people are just gonna fall out of their chairs and their earbuds <laughs> are gonna fall out and give me like man that guy's brilliant and I tried <laughs> to do that in the second season mm. and there there's a a point in the very very last episode of the show where Dan and Rachel go to the graveyard because they have to uh, uh, find uh, someone's grave again I won't mm-hmm. give give away any details <laughs> and. Dan is standing over the grave when they finally find uh, this grave site, and he's talking to Rachel, and he gives this awesome monologue. And when I wrote it down in Google Docs, I was like, man, that is the coolest thing I've ever written. And then I recorded it, and I'm like, man, I sound like a dick. (laughs) Expectation versus reality right there. Yeah, it's just, you know, sometimes the stuff that you think is going to be like that, you know, killer power ballad on the album Mm -hmm. is just like, it's just such a dud and it happens, there, you know, yeah, there, there's definitely times I've written something. Um, I remember I wrote, I wrote a character monologue for, um, my series, the last Cineto, And obviously I'm, I'm still, I still actively around no sleep. I, I just, the, the feedback you can get on there is just invaluable. And having that many readers at your fingertips is just absolutely insane. And I'm very lucky that I have quite a sizable portion. So I wrote this monologue and I wrote it thinking this is cringy. It is, it is really awkward and, um, I don't like it, but then the, the, the back part of my brain's like, no, you need to do this because this is your, this is the character. And people just fucking f- loved it. They, I was just like, why? And, and they're like, because it's the character. Like, mm. and I, I guess there's a part of you thinks, oh, it's a reflection of me. It's like, not, it, it's a reflection of you in that you wrote it, but it doesn't mean I'm thinking those views because I had to write right. a really vile incel, like a full-blown 4chan uh anti-sex oh worker basement dweller um who well actually i got this from a deep web story but he he performed acid attacks on people Ooh. um there was a deep web website called acid splash it's gone now um where they people paid a lot of money to see these angry men um take uh hydrochloric acid and like spray it and we, we when we hear when people hear this they think a pot of acid no 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 no, no. a spray like it is mm. i've it's it, it's I saw like a CCTV thing when they when I think uh, RT RT was I was like showing a case file and the guy just walks up and walks off. That is that is it. Oh god, it is terrifying. And I wanted to write something that embodied the sentimentality of young, fragile white men who use the Joker movie as their personality, use Ryan Reynolds's Drive as their personality, and um, I hated writing it. 
And um, and I had to do these things where I had to do seven inmates, and each one of them had to have a, an egregious crime. And of course, that meant I had to do the crime that no one wants to talk about. And so I mulled this over for ages because it was truly horrible. And I just said, you know what? I'm not going to write about it. I'm going to have Nell, the main character, just just uh, dick him down, not literally, but like you know, really mm-hmm. like t- like run him into the ground, describe his crime without too much detail, and move on. Mm-hmm. And 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 someone said, well, why aren't you doing that? That's horror. And I was like, that's not horror. That to me. I had to do yeah. it because it's contextually yeah. there, but I, yeah. I, I don't buy that that's horror. Um, I spit on your grave. I'm sure it's a great movie. You'll never catch me fucking watching it. I'm, I'm, I'm like, stop for me. Yeah, it, to me, there, there's a difference between horror and gross. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, horror to me, there's a there's a kind of intelligence to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I think any, anyone can write something just that is just disgusting, right? Mm. Um, and to me, that that isn't you know horrifying. It's just mm. why am I consuming this? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to me, true horror. And again, like I said earlier, horror is something different for for everyone. Mm. To me personally, true horror is something that's more psychologically damaging than anything. Absolutely, else, you know, absolutely. And if you can really, really rock me off center and mm-hmm. rethink the way that center feels. That to me is horror. That that's that's exactly it. Like I I'm not gonna sit on my high horse, but I I've always been a belief that psychological horror is the is the true king. I don't think anything can match it. And I've I've there's some movies that are just supernatural, spooky, and gross that you know are all right. Like, but they don't have a candle. Like if if someone says to me, tries to tell me that Hostel is better than Jacob's Ladder or Session Nine, mm. I'm just sitting there going. Okay, but Hostel makes me uncomfortable. Someone's going to slice my ankles. But Jacob's Ladder has me genuinely worried. I live in a simulation and I'm on one big psychedelic trip. Right, right. Session nine has me concerned that I have another personality, which we all do. That second thing that that creepy, creepy Sigmund Freud talked about. That we all have an, an, an underlying personality that is there that will come out. Um, when I when I write something, when I create something horror, and and and, and I suppose even when you when you're acting in something. You want to get across an impression where someone cannot sleep afterwards. Mm. It, it, to me, horror is about evoking emotion in the same way when you watch mm. a romance movie, you want to feel the love. When you watch a comedy, you want to laugh. You don't laugh at a comedy movie. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, like, no, you, don't walk out of John, you don't walk out of John Wick and want to like kill people who hurt dogs and right. go crazy. Right. Like you, it's an emotion. And so when someone goes, oh, I was scared of jump scares. Like, was there anything other than the jump scares? No. Then you didn't see a horror movie. You right. saw a roller coaster ride. You saw a thriller, and that's fine. That's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's not horror. Um, and there are so many good examples over like the last you know fifty six years. Like it's one of the oldest genres, literary genres, mm. that has stood the test of time. And I think it's because of how it affects people. And I'm so glad to have someone who actually uh, like you know I've talked about psychological horror here and there, but like it is such a really under underappreciated genre subgenre in the horror yeah, place. It- and I think that feeling can be carried over into a lot of different genres too. I mean, like so take take comedy for instance, and try to mm. translate that over. There there has to be a psychological human aspect to make comedy work. To me, there is mm. a difference between, um, you know, a show like you know Cheers, which I love because it's you know based in my hometown and it's mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. classic sitcom. And then you know my wife and I just fin- uh, finished binging Shit's Creek, which okay. uh, to me there's just a drastic difference between you know, a comedy to give you, you know, cheap chuckles mm-hmm. and a comedy that makes you appreciate life more. Mm. Um, you know, mm. it, it, Schitt's Creek to me, and I, I again, I, I don't know 
how many people have actually seen it. I know it's gotten more popular in the last year or so. But to me, it addresses social issues. It really taps on those in a way that really makes you rethink it. And to me, that knocks you off center, even in Mm -hmm. a different genre such as comedy. And, you know, I think a a lot of different shows have touched on that across, you know, whatever. Even a show as mainstream as The Office, I think, did it a little bit. Yeah. Um, Although I'm not a fan of The Office. I realize it's sacrilege. But the reason is I don't like awkward comedy. So Really? I am... I have something in me that does not like awkward pauses and awkward silences. I cringe so hard I have to walk out. I've had people when I was at university in dorms who put on, and it, this was in lots of different things as well as the office, but like the UK office obviously came first and that was even more awkward, mm. even more mm. because we're English. And so we are just a million times more awkward in the I way know. we present ourselves. But Ricky and Gervais so, can't help but be awkward though, you know? <sighs> Ricky Gervais is just... Um, <laughs> He can't help complicated. it. He's complicated. But his, his, I don't like his humor. I, you know, the man, I can't, you know, the man's got highs and lows, but the, I don't like his humor. And it's just because his whole thing relies on these uncomfortable silences. And some mm-hmm. people just love it. And I'm just sitting there going, I want to tear my skin off and leave. Like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. You and know, I've the, seen the funny some, thing about Ricky Gervais, yeah. though, is that, like, I can't stand any show that he's ever made. Like, the original Office UK, I don't like. Afterlife, mm-hmm. I don't like. However, the man gives the best monologue I've ever seen. If you ever watch him give the monologue at the Oscars or something like that, I think mm-hmm. his humor is absolutely brilliant. And for the life of me... a man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if there's some sort of cognitive dissonance between writing a scripted, you know, series like that versus yeah. just taking quick, you know, one-off jabs at people. It's weird. It's very weird the way he is. But then that's like... It's it's like almost like oh you know this Adam Sandler thing like you know Adam Sandler is one of those guys who can he can absolutely nail that when he wants to he mm. still can mm-hmm. and yet like there's many times where he doesn't and there's certain very strange he, he's sneaky versatile too I I found myself watching Uncut Gems a couple of months ago mm-hmm. um, which is by far and away his best film mm. um, and he doesn't cut a joke in the entire thing. It's straight drama yeah. the entire time. Funny People's very similar to that. Yes. Um, and yes, I love is. that. I love that. Again, that's that to me is almost a bit of black humor and horror because it's this idea of he is so broken as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, that just really threw me, really threw me. But yeah. I, I got to ask you. Sure. Um, what is your favorite horror movie slash TV series slash mm. story or, or podcast? If you've got any of those in those kind of realms. So there's been a lot of them. Um, I mean, so it, obviously if I'm taking no sleep out of it, because I'm inherently <laughs> biased just a tad. Um, it, you know, like I said earlier, the Black Tapes will always hold a special place in my heart because mm-hmm. it's the first scripted podcast I really ever got into. Mm. And it was just so brilliantly done. So mm-hmm. brilliantly done. Um, so I'd say as far as podcasts go, Black Tapes is definitely up there. Um, as far as movies go, it, it's it's strange, but nothing has ever affected me like the ring did. And I was really well, the original Japanese ring, you mean? No, you no, not Ringu. I mean, like the US version. Really? I yeah, I didn't. I, I liked it, but I saw Ringu first. I don't know if that ruined me for it. I, it, I thought the probably. American was actually decent, but so huh. it's, I mean, this thing okay. came out when I was, you know, what, 18, 19 years old, something like that. Yeah, I was 13. So that sounds about right. And to confess just a bit, I think it was the first horror film I had ever seen. And I wasn't really? listening. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I got into the genre relatively late. Like I hadn't even mm. seen the exorcist at that point. 
um, which it, to me is just more of a comedy at, the, at, at this point in time because it's just it is it is wonderful. not a, it, it's aged well and it hasn't there are there are things mm. there I, I think we're in an age where we it's unfortunate but like you can look at the filming techniques and be like man this was so revolutionary yeah and yet like my argument is okay but alien and the thing were not that far ahead and look at how amazing those two are those still still have the magic of the the claustrophobia the uncomfortable sort of feeling of being followed and um and, and the thing is just just masterfully and so like i don't know mm. like i just the exorcism to me is it's like the omen that doesn't do a lot for me yeah i i totally agree um and then as far as tv would go Again, a, a bit of a no sleep connection because of Mike Flanagan, but it, the mm-hmm. miniseries "The Haunting of Hill House" mm-hmm. that came out a couple yeah. of years ago is just—I yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's still it, the it highest is. rated horror TV series on television. It, it is, and it, you know what? It's it's one of those things where you get to that tenth episode, and yeah. you don't expect it to have this—you know—well-rounded, um, almost like moral follow-through. And it has it's this, a beautiful like, ending. It really was. And I that's how I like it. to finish stories. Like I like to wrap a nice little bow on it. And I, and some people say, that's not how horror is. It should always end negative. It's like, well, why, why does it have to end negatively? Like, it's cool to have a little bit of an open door of all oh, it could happen again. But why, why does horror, why do we have this idea that everything must be miserable? Like, yeah, why I, can't you have this idea of like, it's like a roller coaster. You start off simple, mm-hmm. you creep up, you get your apex, you go down and then you peter off, maybe a little bit of a bump. Like, and yeah. I thought that they did it perfectly. That ending with, I mean, it's been out for a while, so I'm not going to spoil too much. But like, when when Nell goes through the door mm-hmm. and her face, and they're playing Gregory Isa- Alan Isakoff, who's a beautiful British musician, mm-hmm. and playing If I Go, I'm Going. Mm, I I was in tears because you just have that, and then you have the birthday cake with the brother, and it was just it was just so beautifully shot and they didn't have to do it like that they really didn't they could have no. done anything and and the thing is if if you ended that after like nine and a quarter episodes yeah and you left it on a down note the it was shot still like, like a that, yeah. solid a minus you know it mm-hmm. was a very very good show if you just cut it right there mm-hmm. but you know you, you get back to adding humanity back into a story and yes. To me, that's where everything really wraps that's together. That's what horror is, right? It's it a struggle of humanity. It absolutely. And God, if that doesn't get back to the anxiety talk, it's mm-hmm. it's getting back to being honest and being open with your own human experience. Mm. And if we can tie that together at the end of, of a story, regardless of the genre, right? And you can actually speak and- to somebody, then then that's the goal, man. You know, that show still has my favorite monologue of all time, which is Theodora's. Um, uh, monologue at the end of episode nine mm. that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the best thing i have ever seen acted slash written that i cannot overstate to anyone who doesn't understand tv writing um like there is a lot of um there's a lot of fingers in different pies and a lot of stuff gets lost in the shuffle and and sometimes you you don't see the end result like you'll be tasked with doing an episode and you'll work with people but it will still go through a lot of people to to see that beautiful piece of monologuing make its way from the beginning to the end and it stayed there and they kept it which was an uncomfortable amount of time that theodora's talking yeah um, sure and the whole idea of it's an allegory it's a beautiful beautiful allegory for grief and terror and anxiety and ptsd in the guise of what theodora's you know her whole thing is she feels someone and she can feel everything and it's this idea of like 
Well, when you wake up one day and you start to feel nothing, mm-hmm. that is genuinely terrifying. Oh, it's it's awful. And you know, it, so two two cool things came out of that for for me on a personal level. Mm. Level number one, Kate uh, Siegel, who plays uh, Theodora, obviously naming her daughter in real life Theodora, I thought was just gorgeous. Yeah. And, and number two, I still one of the coolest professional accomplishments of my life. Mm-hmm. was being in a, a, a podcast called Calling Darkness. In Calling which Darkness, was the, hell yeah. the narrator. And getting to be in a show with her was just the coolest shit ever. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to mention that. Like, we, we, um, I, I've talked to Gemma and to, and to Sarah about that process. And, you know, that's where you're blending comedy in with horror. And that can sometimes be a very dangerous thing. Like, Shaun of the Dead did it really, really well. One of my favorite, favorite movies. Mm. Um, and there's there's been some really well-done horror comedies but i think there's a very weird line and i don't always know where that line is so i don't know if i would ever write a horror comedy because i feel like i would go one too far in one direction or the other um but because like of the you knew at the time that you were gonna work with kate siegel mm-hmm. was there a degree of pressure like in your mind that like where you were because bear in mind like you know the listenership of no sleep podcast is, is astronomical it is a market leader so mm-hmm. you've already you're already used to that and you know there's been tours and everything else did you feel like you were you'd been prepared through that to kind of do this role, so it wasn't as scary? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, anytime you work with somebody you know of that caliber, you, I think the only pressure is to make sure that you live up to your role in the show, and that mm. you know, m- making her understand that she made the right choice by being a part of the project. Yes, um, because I mean, she as I expected she would be. She was so terrific in mm-hmm. her role as the narrator that I, I knew that I had to bring some sort of complimentary, you know, role to the show. And, mm. you know, the beautiful the thing that came out of that show wasn't even uh, Kate. It was the, the fact that I get to just murder the writers every day about writing the sequel about the jacket. So it's <laughs> <laughs> anyone well, who hasn't listened to the show season, gets, has no idea what the hell I'm talking about. What's that? On season two. So, you know, there I is know. also that. I know. And I, I, I told Sarah and Gemma that the jacket better be centric or I am out. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, but no, I mean, it's, I, I think No Sleep did definitely prepare me for it. it it's funny, yeah. though. I never, I never really got the full impact of the No Sleep podcast in, in terms of its listenership until I went to the first Boston show on the first live tour back in 2017. Tell me about it. Let's let's walk through that because that must yeah. have been a beautiful moment. Um, you know, as and when live tours come back, which I'm sure will probably not be for another year or two. Like I am very looking forward to being a part of that. But um, in the meantime, like hearing the stories that have come out of it, like talk me through <laughs> your experience. So I've been to three tours so far. Um, each is so unique. I mean, it's just. I'm continually in awe of the dedication and the love that the listeners show mm-hmm. to the cast and the crew of, of, of this show. It's, it's really amazing. And you know, the, the funny thing is, is so, you know, there, there's the touring cast. So this is back in, I think October of 17 or maybe yeah. big, big, I don't know when the hell it was. It was 17. And so you have the touring cast and it was, uh, you know, Peter and Brandon and Erica and, and Jess and Nicole and David and, uh, and, and David Alt and, so they're all on stage doing their thing. And, it, you know, we have regional guests for every stop on the tour. And so in the Boston show, it was myself and Mike Delgadio hanging out in mm. the back, just watching the show. 
And so we're we're sitting out back having a beer for like an hour and a half while the show's going on because it's you know no one knows who the hell we are because we're voices. <laughs> and so we we get called on at the end of the show and we do like this little you know like add on little story that you know they wanted to show off the regional people that came to the show which was fine. <laughs> and um, so I go to Brandon I'm like so the show ends and he's like all right so you got to stick around now I'm like for what are we gonna get like dinner or something because at that point it was like 10 30 and i was like sure. all right i gotta go to work tomorrow and he's like no no no, you gotta stick around like they want to come up and say hi and you gotta sign stuff i'm like <laughs> i'm like what the fuck are you talking about i gotta sign stuff he's like no you gotta come over here oh. I'm, like, I'm like okay and at this point i'd only been on the show for like a year and change so i'm yeah fairly sure that it was an elaborate prank um <laughs> so <laughs> so we go over to the merch table and I'm standing there just like looking like a complete like ass, like twiddling my thumbs. And this line forms around the entirety of the building. Like no one left and Aww. hundreds of people just like line up around the building waiting to come up. And so we can sign like, you know, postcards or take pictures with them. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And I, I just stood there and off for the first 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, this is weird. Um, cause I really, at that point, I think people need to understand the, the self-conscious nature of each and every one of us. Mm -hmm. Like we, it takes a long time to convince ourselves that we're any good at this stuff. And I still mm -hmm. have my mm -hmm. doubts. I look know? in the mirror every day and I'm like, you ain't oh, shit. And dude, then I go downstairs. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah, every no, it's day. True. And you it's know, it's, you know, a couple of tours later, I finally got the hint, but it's, <laughs> I, you know, I still am incredibly self-conscious about my performances on no sleep. I mean, even though I loved everything that I wrote and how it ended up, I'm incredibly self-conscious about John Parker. Do you um, listen back to a lot of that? Such as a side but do you listen back to your performances that you either liked or didn't like on the podcast and also John Parker? Like, do you take stock of it? Because like something I do, and I've never admitted this in the show, I go back and listen to other voice actor projects I've done um, for a few YouTubers. I I look back and listen to the Mythos episodes, um, and I do the same. I don't do the table read as much because this is more of a natural setting. But anything I do where I put my voice on it, I go and listen to it, and I and I'm I'm I make little notes in my head. Yeah, I think I've so just because of the sheer production nature of John Parker, I think I've listened to that more than anything else. Just mm -hmm. because I, I produce the whole thing, so by the time an episode's come out, I've listened to it 400 times in various <laughs> forms already, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, no Sleep, I'll generally listen to my roles once they come out once, and then I can't bear to hear my voice again. It's just so really? cringy to me. I hate my voice. Um, which is really an odd thing for a voice actor mm. to say, because it's literally, like, all I do. Um, <laughs> but I'll listen to it one... The only time I'll ever listen to a No Sleep performance twice is if it's a narration that I feel like I did a pretty good job on. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll listen back to it. Not, not because I like to hear myself talk, but I'll, I'll listen to it and say, okay, what about this? Did I particularly love? Yeah. What did you, what worked? I, exactly. Mm. And, and there are always a few, you know, maybe a half dozen or so narrations that, you know, five years into this gig, um, that will always stick out in my mind. Um, like there, there's a, a, a Henry Galley story, uh, called mm -hmm. the art of transubstantiation, okay. which, um, is a, is a story about how there's this like performance artist played by Peter Lewis because it, Peter plays like the sickest, grossest people ever. And he's wonderful at it. Um, and his big, uh, you know, performance at the end of this is to like, to cut himself up and, and to feed him as lunch to people at this like final oh performance he was God. giving on video. It was gross. That is, am what, that is amazing folks. Yeah. That is season 10, episode 11. I'm going to, as, as Dan goes through, he's going to try and itinerize that. Yeah. Oh, you season have 10, episode 11. That is fucking horrifying now i'll let you know why 
this one always sticks out uh-huh. in my head and Henry is up my ass about this every time I talk to him and for good reason. <laughs> so first of all, it's one of my favorite stories I've ever been a part of because it's just mm-hmm. so beautifully fucking written. There is a line in there where uh, the narrator played by myself uh, calls out a piece of art, uh, which was called Pilate's Verdict, um, which obviously with biblical implications and whatever. Now, sure. before I tell you why this is funny, occasionally, as a voice actor, mm-hmm. especially with no sleep, we have one, maybe two opportunities to read a script. Because mm-hmm. there's a very quick turnaround time. I got yes. these things on a Tuesday, Wednesday. This thing is into them by the weekend. Yes. So I, I usually go into a lot of these things pretty cold. And, you know, 250 rolls on no sleep later, there's a gaff here and there. Mm-hmm. And so I listened back to this thing. I recorded it. I loved it. Sent it into the producers. David listened to it. Everyone, you know, signed off on it. We were all good. And then the episode comes out. <laughs> and I'm listening back to it. And I can always hear shit in it once it's actually published on the feed. Of course. And I listen back to it. And I said, Pilates verdict. As in Pilates, <laughs> like the fucking exercise. <laughs> and Henry gets up my ass every time I speak to him. Did you ever and get he any? Should. Oh no! Did you get any fan art of that? Because like I've just got P- P- Pontius Pilate doing Pilates. <laughs> <in my head. laughs> and to this day, and and yeah, there there was fan feedback because there are like you know subreddits and feedback. Oh, and, and that's like, amazing! And you know we have wow. like the Facebook group and everything, and people are like, "What the fuck is Pilates verdict? Why did he say?" And to this day, I don't know how the hell I said that, but. You know, it's one of the brain just goes weird though. Like when we <laughs> see does. certain words, like there is just a bit of our brain just goes stupid. But that it is does. that is beautiful. Are there any others from the podcast that have like really like stuck out to you that you'd like like from people here who maybe haven't heard them? Because even the the super fans of Lucy podcast are you know maybe not familiar with the older stuff. Like is there anything they could go and check out that you? Oh you sure. Um, so I joined in season six. I think. Jesus, one of the, I know, right? Um, season six, episode twenty. Five, I believe it was. It was a story called Creeping Crimson, which was one of my first handful of narrations, but is still one of the stories that sticks out in my head where this couple pulled in during a rainstorm into a hotel and hijinks ensue. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, to this day, it's one of my most well-remembered ones. So, um, yeah, if you're into the the older yeah. uh, glory days of the No Sleep podcast, as it were. And if you were to pick um, yeah. one out, aside from those two, that, that like you would use as your demo reel, say Mick Flanagan came knocking and was like, damn, we mm. would have got an audio project. Oh, when you want it, which one would you go kind of go for? Is there anything um, that like, really would, would pop out? What would pop out to me? There was, um, there was a Halloween episode. Um, it was 17 or 18 uh, that I narrated. It was a story called We Don't Do Halloween. Um, and David was in that, and I think i want to say jessica was in that as well uh that was season eight episode four and that was dan uh so it's you that was jessica and erica sanderson there you go um gee, you're really quick on the dial with those man dude Holy i crap. i i uh i do not fuck around yeah that was jp Apparently. carver um that is available if you want to check that out yeah just an excellent story um well written it's so much easier to uh to get these things across and and to to do a good job on my end when these stories are well written and that was yeah of course yeah, that was one of the best. And it, it can be difficult sometimes, like, you know, that 
critics are always going to be there, like no matter where you are, right? And 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 of course, like you know, oh, quality is dipping, and you know, bullshit like that. No story is created equal. I think is a fair mm. assessment, and and horror it varies. So yes, there are going to be episodes which aren't for everybody. Um, yes, there are, there are horror themes that aren't for everybody. I, I like I said, the discourse on Honk If You're Hungry fueled me <laughs> because people don't realize I wrote that to be offensive, and I was so happy when Olivia just was like, "This is going to be really funny." I was like, "I know." because <laughs> um, I never write gore so that was um, so amusing for me but like I think when when a story communicates itself well and lends itself to the right actor with the right mindset for it that's that's definitely a big part of it and casting is like difficult for the show like it's oh, it is sure. it is hard to find the right people the right things um, even for the mythos like because we're dealing with real people we have to really sit and consider like um you know there's there's a couple of roles um ironically one of them is someone we're gonna mention to you but um you know we have to sit there and go all right do we want to you know we i have to go and listen to the tapes if there are any of these people and i have to go right uh how do they sound where are they from what was their cadence like and you know it's like i wouldn't choose um someone like um atticus for oscar wilde but i would damn <laughs> yeah, sure yeah. choose him for someone like um, Ernest Hemingway, like you know what I mean, yeah. like it's, it's like it's like yeah. knowing knowing the voice roles is so such an important part of that. And I guess like now in the age where you know we're in the lockdown, everyone's trying new hobbies and people are pushing themselves to try new things. And I've certainly seen more people pushing the podcast narrative, pushing uh, the voice acting narrative. What advice would you give people from both sides of that spectrum, from from creating a podcast and from voice acting? Um, so from the voice acting angle. Uh, listen from the veterans around you. Um, I, I mentioned this before. The, the only reason I really got a chance to develop my craft is because David took the time to teach me the proper way to do things. You know, there's, mm. there's a certain, you know, distance you should be from your mic. Uh, there's a certain type of mic that you should try to be using. The, mm -hmm. A pop filter can make and break your life. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a, a cadence and a tone. So, you know, learn from those around you. I don't think it's, it's not necessarily enough just to, you know, go listen to podcasts that you like. It's, it's really worth it to reach out and have conversations with people who have done it because uh, yeah. they, they can give insight to things that don't necessarily translate uh, obviously into the final product, mm -hmm. but things that are done behind the scenes that really are the meat of a performance. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, definitely reach out to people. The, the podcasting community, especially the creators, are so open and willing to help. Really, uh, no are. one's going to turn Absolutely. you away. No yeah. one's going to turn you away. Um, so don't be shy. Don't be shy. The wonderful people are around waiting to, to, to teach and to help. Um, in, in terms of podcast creation and starting up a show, you know, it's, it's really a, a two-sided coin. Num number one, put your love into the writing. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how good a, a, a production ends up being if the writing is meh. You know, you, you have to have the, the basis to build that tower on. Um, but on that other, uh, on the other side of the coin too, it, it can be the most well-written story in the world, but if the production sucks, it's not going to translate well. So you, you have to, you know, really A, just pour your love and your heart into the writing and, and revise mm -hmm. and revise and let other people read and get opinions and, and craft it until you feel like you really do have a finely polished, finished product. And, yeah. you know, production-wise... God damn, is that a learning experience? Oh, um, yes. I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah. If if you listen to, you know, the production of the very first episode of John Parker to the finale, mm -hmm. it's drastically different. 
mm-hmm. drastically mm-hmm. different. And that just comes with, you know, A, playing around in Logic Pro for two years. Yeah. But, you know, watching YouTube tutorials, talking to other people, picking up on shortcuts and learning how to, you know, sound balance and not clip <laughs> your audio and just basic shit, you know, it's, yeah, it all adds up to the final thing. Like, so it's funny this actually segues into my next thing where you know you we talked earlier about legacy and we talked mm-hmm. earlier about you know what the hell am i going to do during the pandemic mm. for some reason now i'm thinking of making a musical album no and shit. yeah i know and i'm like horrified that i'm actually doing this why wow, that's but, awesome well because so i'm my my first th- I'm i'm a trained musician that's the only thing yes. i'm really trained in. i was gonna bring that up but yes you are yeah, it's it's the only thing I'm really trained in. I'm not like a professionally trained voice actor in the least. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, that's my goal for like 2021, 22 is to actually put together like a full LP. And when like, did uh, you start? Like, when did you start uh, becoming a musician? Like, were you with us from a young age? Like, you started the piano very young. Yeah. So my parents uh, put me into piano lessons when I was four. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I know. It's, were you showing aptitude, or was it just a case that they wanted you to have something like that from a young yeah, age? Yeah. So. My dad uh, is very musically inclined, and uh-huh. they saw that I kind of inherited some of that, I guess. So mm. they put me into lessons. Um, I, I guess I did well. Uh, I don't have a humongo memory of that time in my life. Sure, but, sure. Um, but, you know, like, like I did family events. Like, when I was five, I played at my grandparents' 50th anniversary. Oh. And I played at a few weddings, and then, you know, through college and afterwards, I was, mm. you know, doing the whole front man in a band thing. And, mm-hmm. and you know, then it just... And tailed off into other aspects of my life, but I, I feel like it's been dormant for long enough that I want to pick it back mm. up. So now that yeah. now that we talk the music thing now, I have to ask this, which yeah. again, just fun breaking new ground on table read. Sure. Um and this is a big question, so you know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I I I don't want to risk dead air, but I am gonna ask it. Um one of the things that I have always held very dear to me when I'm writing, when I'm creating, and I would encourage anyone to do this, is I always have music on. Now, if I'm writing dialogue, I don't have anything with lyrics in because that can be very detrimental. But I routinely, when I'm editing, I have um, instrumentals on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm very into Max Richter, who I think is one of the greatest sort of modern composers. Ludovic Einaudi is one of, is probably my favorite pianist of all time. Mm-hmm. He uh, is the man just makes pianos sexy. I don't know how he does it, <laughs> but Ottramare uh, is one of my greatest piano pieces I've ever heard. Like it, it literally, it's next to Claire de Lune for me in terms of like that is a song that leaves a legacy when it's, you know, to think that song is only 10, 11 years old is insane. Um, you know, so a lot of electronica, um, Apex Twin, Flashbulb, so on and so forth. But um, out of the 80,000 plus songs I've got, like there's always this idea and this changes. And I realize that you're going to hear this back in two weeks and go, man, that's not what I want to go with anymore. But <laughs> what would be the album? Um, maybe not, not, not your best album of all time. No, we're going to go with what album would define the current dancer Pula? What album could oh, you go boy. back to and just be like, this is me, like, in this moment? It's the same answer as the greatest album of all time in my head. Okay. Um, That's easy, then. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's always been this album. It's it's always been Abbey Road. Always. Really? Okay. Always. Um, and I know that's a super mainstream answer. I don't um, think Abbey Road's a mainstream answer, given what most people would probably go with the White Album. Uh, I, think, I, think, yeah. I think out of all the albums, that's, Abbey Road is not the one I would have expected. A- Abbey Road, to me, is the most complete piece of music ever made um interesting front to back even with maxwell silverhammer um it is front to back the most uh it's i could talk to you we could have done the whole hour and a half on abbey road actually (laughs) now that i think about it but you know when you have 
a band of that magnitude, right? Mm -hmm. And you have Mm -hmm. so many strong, fragile egos fighting at each other. And they decide to come together at the, no pun intended right there, which is the first song on the goddamn album. But when they decide to come (laughs) together Mm. and, and put their joint efforts in unity into this one last blast. Mm. And they put out two distinct thing, uh, two distinct sides of music where on one side you have John Lennon and George Harrison come up with some of their finest music ever. You have George Harrison coming up with something, which I believe is the best love ballad ever written. You have John Lennon leading with come together, which is, transcendent even from 1969 50 years on it's still so important yeah that that song will never not be relevant um you go all the way through to this song that literally scratches the end of the 33 and i want you Mm -hmm. she's so heavy all the way through to this thing Mm. and you flip it around and on the back you have this melodious montage from you never give me your money all the way through the golden slumbers medley and I didn't even mention Here Comes the Sun. <laughs> Which is one of those songs that I think, out of anything I would put on there, I would say that's the song people should listen to. If it's, you were just to pick one, gorgeous. That, that's the one I would choose. It's, it, Here Comes the Sun is, is a magnificent piece of song structure and, and melody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would certainly say Abbey Road is, is representative of me and of my mood always. Mm. Um, if we're going towards, you know, what's like, you, what am I currently listening to? What influences me? All that sort of stuff. Mm. I've always been super into blues. I love Eric Clapton. I love BB King. I love Buddy Guy. Mm. Um, like really, just emotion. That's what I'm into. If you can there's, feel someone crying through a guitar, there's a lot of beauty in 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 like that kind of. Um... I think there's a lot of sentiment. Like Miles Davis is probably mm. my my guy, um, mm. and and, and I, another fun admission of the podcast. So I actually did the Beatles for my music degree. And, oh really? Um, yes, because we were doing um, uh, avant garde and baroque music, and I naturally chose Sgt. Pepper. Mm. Um, biggest mistake of my life because <laughs> uh, anyone who's ever done a degree that requires research knows. That's six months of your life of listening to the same fucking thing over and over again. Um, and I can just, it's been 10, uh, not 10 years. It's been nine years. No, my God, I can't count eight years since I finished my degree. So this time, eight years ago, I was in the middle of probably my 400th listen of the Sacha Pepper, <laughs> trying to understand the, the fundamentals and breaking it down. And I hated it. I hated it so much. And I can just about listen to that album now. And I still believe personally that a day in the life is the greatest song they've ever written. Period. It may be. It may because be. it was everything they did was groundbreaking but that really was groundbreaking nothing mm. had ever been done like that i believe it was the first pop song to use orchestration yep it was it was just yep. so special um and the fact that like a, a fun little trivia fact for our listeners that was the song that made brian singer um go into such a deep depression when he heard the demo he didn't really smile for 37 years mm-hmm. like that is Imagine being in a time where emo didn't exist. Sad songs weren't really like crooning was a thing, obviously, but it didn't have the same effect. And someone pulls out this track that is just at the time, just, you know, that I heard the music today, oh boy. And it's, and it's just like, oh, it just crushes you. Yeah. Crushes and it, you. And I think that, you know, that song, 
is perhaps the best example of how Lennon and McCartney worked so well in combining their different musical styles into mm. one composition. Because, you know, on, on the one side, you have Lennon, who has this really, really serious thing. He's singing about, you know, this car crash and bullets yeah. flying into to, uh, Albert Hall. It's like, no, no, right. many also takes over the Albert Hall. Um, and yeah. then yeah, in the middle of this, broken up <laughs> by this... Funny fucking crescendo by george martin which he just dun, took out dun, of dun, nowhere dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah see it's in your head now and then yeah. you have this unfinished mm. song by paul mccartney where he's going woke up got on a band to go my god my band and it's weird they, they just merge these two things together yeah. and form this, this gorgeous piece of music and it's, it's so bizarre in that respect and and and, and to to make sure because i'm sure why people are going oh this isn't horror talk well it's a bit of everything but that that kind of is what um, what horror can be though it is mashing two very strange things together it can be and and yeah. seeing what works and there are a lot of examples where you're taking i think like one of my favorite ways of looking at horror and and, and it really is like music is it's not about throwing what's at the ball and see what sticks it's about taking something personal for you applying it to something completely different and seeing how they mesh together and I, we, you know, I've gone on about this movie ad nauseum, but but um, Hereditary is brilliant because it embraces things that you're not supposed to embrace in horror. Mm. Like one of the things you're taught from a very like Asian when you're making things is don't leave dead silence, don't leave dead air, don't leave things just to be hanging. And 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 I, I would say like fifty percent of Midsummer is hanging in the air. Those scenes where she's at the table waiting, doing the seances are legitimately uncomfortable. And she she gets in her son's face, just screaming at him, and it's <laughs> it is just you know horrible, horrible stuff. But Midsummer again, like Midsummer has the slowest intro to a movie I've mm -hmm. ever seen, mm -hmm. and yet it has the most devastating first five minutes. It's horrible. There is mm -hmm. no other way to describe it. It is horrible. But again, these things work when when you combine these strange elements just to see what will work. I, I, one of the people I wish, genuinely, genuinely wish, had a bigger legacy than what he does is David Lynch. I, I, mm. I realize that, you know, there are a lot of people who, who know of him. I don't think enough people know of him and what he's done and, and the contributions he's had towards that uncomfortable era of, of music. Because uh, with his musical compositions, where he used these heavy drones and he would use them on these uncomfortable black and white backdrops with static movements from the characters and and really off kilter coloring um when he did have coloring like or in a race ahead was so horrid to look at not because it's just of what the, the the boy looked like but the the way it was shot and the way it sounded he was so so gifted or is so gifted i should say and i, I feel like he's one of those people just because it's in my head like i feel like he doesn't get enough love you know i mean it's gosh you could say that about so many people too and i think it, a lot of that just comes with the courage in trying something that someone's going to be uncomfortable with. Right. But again, and, and doesn't that just go back to the original definition of horror though? It's, mm. you know, it's, it's saying, showing something so humane that makes you a little bit off of your normal, comfortable center. Yeah. And it, it, like I said before, it just, it manifests itself in so many different ways. Even, you know, even going back to a day in the life, one of the, you know, the, the real, you know, terrifying, horrifying things for me is knowing that I might never write something that good. That yeah, right, that's right. Just that that scares the shit out of me. What if I never like, write something? You're, you're that looking good? at a giant, right? You're looking at yeah. this, you're standing on the shoulder of giants. Truly, Absolutely. it's like which was the worst Oasis that? album, by the way. But that's the. That's what <laughs> 
I, I, I never very good. That was, that was good. I haven't okay. talked about Oasis in 15 years, and that's how I finally drop it. Uh, love their music, <laughs> and they have the wrong front man. Well, I don't know why the more talented singer isn't. Oh, is, no, is should have been the front man from the start. Oh, little by little is still the greatest fucking Oasis. Song. You know what? Oh. If we if we really want to stay on the Gallagher's for a second, Noel's uh, solo band, the High Flying Birds, mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic. And th- mm-hmm. talk about people who are not as mainstream and well-known as they should be. Noel mm-hmm. Gallagher should be on top of the world right now. Why Why they did Heathen Chemistry and didn't listen and go, oh, you know what, maybe we should change our front man over. Oh but obviously, you know, and it's not taking anything away from Liam. Like, Liam is very gifted. He really is. But I don't like the Tom DeLonge kind of singing. I've just Mm-mm. never have done. Nope. And and it's like you hear Wonderwall and he's got this, you know, this, this awkward kind of nasally capture in his throat, which my, my teacher would tell me, don't do that. It doesn't mm-hmm. sound nice. And then you hear Noel sing, and he's got this belting voice. It's the same thing with Steven Tyler when he used to, mm-hmm. we did Dream On. Why would you go from singing like that to walk this way? And again, I don't have a problem with He doesn't with even sound way. like the same person, now. It's no. amazing. Cocaine is, is just insane what it does to you. It's a hell really, of a drug. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, yeah. But, but it's, yeah, it's, it's insane. Like, obviously, clearly, we, we you know... Uh, there's a bond on music there, which I love. But it is it is interesting in that, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are unsung heroes. Um, and and I, I've now got this, because uh, this this whole episode has been deviation after deviation. I love it. <laughs> so i gotta I got to ask you a couple of key questions before we finish up here. Please. One of them is, what is the earliest memory you have of true fear? Like, like, like absolute all-encompassing fear. Because mm. one of the things they I, I looked up, knowing knowing that you you were involved in psychology and your family, I looked up something that told me that um, some of our, our the fears we carry into our lives and we write about and we express come from the earliest experiences because they imprint on the brain like trauma, mm-hmm. even if they aren't trauma. So, let's see the earliest one. So there were there were a couple of things, um, and they're they, you know they all center around death, like every major fear does, sure. right? Sure. Um, when I was, you know what, this, this wasn't the earliest one, but it's certainly the one that stayed with me the longest, Mm -hmm. uh, in, I want to say 2002. So I would have been 19 at the Mm -hmm. time. Uh, I, I was, uh, in my second year of college and I had like every other weirdo at the time moved down into my parents' basement and, (laughs) uh, as you do, and, uh, and I, I heard my my dad yelling for me upstairs, and I, I rush upstairs all the way back into my parents' bedroom, and my mom is lying unconscious with her eyes wide open on the bed, and I'm like, oh, fuck. fuck. Yeah. And so, you know, we went through this whole thing where, you know, the ambulance had to come to the house, and I had to right, track down right. where my sister was, and she was at, like, some high school football game, and I'm, yeah. like, yelling to her in the phone, and I'm like, mom's out going to the hospital, and, and oh you know, long story short, it was something totally benign, like, she sat up too quick and <laughs> passed out. It was it was completely stupid. That's but, insane. But it didn't need to be something overtly serious for the mm-hmm. shock to stick with you. Oh, yeah, it hits you. Know? you. It hits yeah. you. My dad being an epileptic and with Alzheimer's, like, you know, the amount of call-outs I've had to go over. I mean, seven months ago, I held him down as he seized. That, you, mm. that, 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 when that mm. shock hits you, it hits you like a fucking freight train. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It That's, is terrifying, no matter how benign yeah. it is, because you don't no. know. At, you, at, the, you, at the time, yeah. everything, every book is open to you in that moment. 
Every yes. outcome is open. Every yes. left turn in your life is possible. And mm -hmm. I don't care how long you live, that image in your head will stick with you. I still remember to this day, mm -hmm. and this was half of my life ago at this point, because mm -hmm. I'll be 38 mm -hmm. this year. Um, I still remember standing over her in the bed and shaking her shoulders mm. and her mouth chattering back and forth because she was just unconscious. Um, and you don't forget things like that. Oh God, no, 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 no. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah, that, that to me was, that's probably the scariest moment I've had in my life so far. Yeah. That is insane. But have you ever had any weird encounters, like any cryptids or, or weird, strange experiences? Cause, uh, I, I recently got mm. done studying like, uh, about the 50 States and, uh, there was like, every state has a strange thing about it and just to yeah. offset that it's a very terrifying thing to experience with your mother but have you ever like are there any local legends anything you've experienced anything like that sure i mean local legends around here are like you know a dime a dozen because i live again i live a half hour away from salem massachusetts sure um personally the the one that sticks out was again it probably around when i was 18 or 19 years old a, a good buddy of mine was actually uh in the seminary studying to be a priest uh, okay. in, in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston. Mm, mm. And so, you know, when you're in the seminary, you're, you're on the grounds of a kind of like a giant religious campus as it were. Okay. And so, you know, being kids, we stayed up until like, you know, three, four in the morning mm. uh, talking about football and drinking Mountain Dew. So we, <laughs> um, it's cause you know, that's, we were 19. Of course, yeah, you, completely you were, you were irrational. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and, and so I remember one night very vividly, uh, it's myself, him and a couple other buddies were walking through the grounds of, uh, his seminary and on his seminary grounds, uh, was the burial place of the, uh, the priest who had passed away, who had worked at that seminary for generations. And one, uh, very specifically had, uh, an above ground mausoleum, uh, dedicated to him and he was buried above ground. Mm. I guess buried above ground doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so this was a, a locked mausoleum. It was gated with bars in the front. You could not get inside. And outside of it were uh, two statues of the Virgin Mary in, in stone. And we could see them, you know, relatively clearly. Mm. Uh, but it was also, you know, one in the morning. So we walked up to them because we're creeps. And we walked to the top of the hill next to the mausoleum, next to one of the statues of, of the Virgin Mary. And I said, I, I want to see what she looks like. So my buddy took his lighter out. And he put his lighter on. Mm. And down the middle of her face were three perfectly drawn, almost like stencil, like retina perfect, three black stripes across her face, vertical black stripes. And of course we freaked out because it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like painting. You couldn't paint mm. that perfect of a line down a curved okay. surface. So we freaked out for a second. I took the lighter from him. I put the lighter back up to her. I put it up to her face and the stripes were gone. What the fuck? Yeah. And you both saw that. Yep, yeah, no, we both saw that, and then we sprinted away, and I think this is the first time I've talked about it since then. No shit, what, what mm -hmm. do you think that was? What is, did you ever look up symbolism, or... like did you No, theories? honestly, I was... The only thing that I could have thought of was that the three stripes could have been on the other Virgin Mary as well, which would have made six. But Oh, so like you, you think there was like some satanic kind of imagery behind that? Who the like, hell knows? I, I honestly... Mean, that would, that's so strange. Yeah. But it, did you have, have nothing came of that though? Like you, when you got home, never had another, like you didn't have any follow-ups nightmares. Well, he left the cemetery a week later, uh, the cemetery, seminary, really? seminary a week later. Yeah. He just, so something, left. bear in mind, like, you know, that's a big commitment he was going for. And he yep. was just, that was it. What, 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 was it just a fear of it or? I, well, I mean, I know he, he had gotten involved with a girl, but I, <laughs> but it, not enough to make him leave a week later. Wow. So, 
Yeah, I we haven't talked about it since then. I have never had the courage to look it up because I honestly don't want to know. No, I, I I will make a point of not telling you if I look it up. Actually, yeah, I will not tell don't. you. But that's that's it. That's just <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of anything iconography like that. That's and so I've strange. never experienced anything like that since then either. And uh, wow, yeah, a little bit weird. That is very weird. And man, like that's that is such a cool like way to sort of like get to the get to the wrap of this. Like this has <laughs> been a a ride. But I I do have um. I do have like one major question for you, which I ask every guest this. Sure. Um, what are your irrational and rational fears? What are the things that truly, truly get to you? Hmm. So I like to consider all of my fears rational. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, my biggest one is something that we touched on earlier is mm-hmm. not fully getting out in my life everything I feel like I can get out. Right. I want my legacy to be as complete as it can be. I want to know that, you know, when I'm nearing the end of the road, I want to look back and say, I had nothing left in the tank to give. Mm. And I want to know that. Um, If I never get to that point, then I'll be disappointed in myself, which I guess is really the basis of the fear. Um, Mm. If we're talking about more tangible things, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) spiders drive me absolutely insane. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, And and honestly, just in real time, it's the fear of not being able to do this anymore. I love voice Mm. acting. So Mm. the fear of, you know, not having this podcasting medium, if God forbid we didn't have, you know, no sleep anymore or anything like that. Oh, that'd be, yeah. Terrifies me. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the stuff that I cling to. Um, I mean, that's aside from the regular fear of, you know, hoping your family stays healthy and all of that sort of thing. Mm, but mm. Um, just as, as far as me personally goes, it's, uh, we got a really good thing going and it terrifies me to think that we, you know, something could ever disrupt that. So Hell yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, now, now bringing it full circle with uh, four years of chaos behind, there is a bit of normalcy. That's right. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I think 18 executive orders were signed today, so... Mm-hmm. That's going to really help things. And, um, you know, for those of you who are a little bit still anxious, do what I do. Go and follow Coping Maga on Twitter. It is an account dedicated to just highlighting uh, far-right people losing their fucking minds over Trump <laughs> not winning and over QAnon being a conspiracy theorist hoax. And oh, it, 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 it literally, whenever I'm sad, whenever I'm sick, I go and look and there is some crying far-right podunk hick going, God save us from the devil. <laughs> Where, where are the national guard it just it just fuels me it, it fuels me and it, if so. i could put a put a bookend on the political conversation as well yeah. because I, I think it's important to to reiterate the basis of of you know why i personally stand where i do mm. and it's just if you have someone around that you love go give them a hug if you yes. have someone that you've had an issue with go and promote a conversation go and yeah. promote peace to them yeah. If everything we do is centered around peace and love, then a lot of these issues start to magically mm-hmm. fade away. So tell those around you that you love them. Tell yeah. your friends around you that you love them. And especially those that you don't love and those that you've had issues with mm. and those that you've had hate for. Open up the door to them, too. And mm. uh, let's establish let's, a dialogue. Absolutely. See if the dialogue works. Absolutely. If that dialogue doesn't work, you can walk away handheld high. You don't have to burn any bridges. You don't have to say anything hateful. Yeah. I often find like it's, you know, when you give, give that hatred away, it's harder. You know, when you, when you smile or laugh or 
you know, you just walk away from it. Like if you know you've tried your best, if you yes. know you've done what you can and they're still being very hateful, and it's like, you know what? Like, don't, you know, you've done it. That's it. Absolutely. You've done what was asked of you. And then put your time into the people that you can establish a dialogue with, that you yeah. know appreciate you. Yeah. Promote peace to those who, A, want to receive it and B, who who, who don't. And if they don't, mm -hmm. that's that's okay too. But uh, to to go back to the music conversation, as as mm. the great John Lennon once said, John at Lennon. least at least give peace a chance. I was literally about to say you're sounding like John <laughs> Lennon right now. So that's, that is that is he that is, is my perfect. idol, my friend. So oh no, hell yeah! And I nearly forgot to ask you, Parker Podcast. What's what's the next steps with that? I don't know. So for you know, for the longest time, I thought series two, uh, season two, was going to be the series wrap. Okay, I've gone back and forth in my head about a season <laughs> three. I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure yet. I want to do the music thing for a little bit first. Mm. And um, I've had some people pushing me to do a season three. And I've also been toying with other stories as well outside of John Parker. So I was going to say, like, why not do more? You've done it now. Like now yeah. you, just, you put your toes in the water. You could do the, you know, the Dancer Pula Network. Yeah, I, I could. I could definitely, which would be a lot of consonants for a network name. But <laughs> But, DZ, uh, the DZ network. Yeah, but, see, that's better. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot out there. And you, you know, you've got two seasons worth, including the the, the bonuses. Yeah. Um, we'll have a link to some of your your keynote podcast entries. But you have got a lot, obviously. Um, you got your coin darkness. You know, there's so much that um you've done out there that uh you know I can't wait to see what else you do and, and to work with you again. And it, it has been this has been the wildest episode of the table read <laughs> that we've had. And after the week that the the we collectively have had. I knew going into this because I know I knew you were a chill guy already. I was like, I'm just going to let this kind of go wherever it goes. And, um, you know, the table read has a center on horror, but I think everything around that is, fine, is very open to interpretation. So thank you for going on that journey with me. Uh, thank you, my brother. It's been fun. Okay, folks, this has been the table read. And I'm going to leave you with another presidential fact. And it's about Teddy Roosevelt, one of the greatest presidents to ever sit in office. And it is not, in fact, about how he got shot. It is actually his shooting spree. Many people don't know that um, Teddy Roosevelt was a staunch conservationist, um, and uh, he had multiple national parks. He created over 150 national forests, protected around 230 million acres of land, and set up several national monuments like the Devil's Tower and Muir Woods. There's no doubt that the 26th president was a big-time nature lover, but conservation was a little different in Roosevelt's day, especially when it came to animals. See, back then, there was an emphasis on preserving animals via taxidermy. If a species was dying off, those creatures were shot and stuffed, so future generations could see these extinct creatures in a museum. Obviously, this meant a lot of animals were killed, especially when Roosevelt and his son Kermit, yep, his son was named Kermit, went on a hunting trip to Africa in 1909. Together, the Roosevelts wiped out 512 animals, with the recently retired president shooting 296. He wiped out eight lions, eight elephants, seven hippos, seven giraffes, and three pythons, just to name a few. He also picked off five northern white rhinos while his son shot four. In fairness, they only kept 12 animals as trophies and the rest were shipped to museums or eaten. And I think it's really important to know that while we now look at that through the lens of that is absolutely horrifying, he did it genuinely, genuinely believing 100 years ago that it was for the arts of preservation. So... You know, sometimes we do things that we don't want to do in order to uh, to safeguard the future. And that can be interpreted in many really creepy ways. So, you know, maybe don't reach too much into that. Folks, he's been Dan Saputa. I've been TJ Lee. This has been The Table Read. Stay safe out there and we will see you next time. I hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Table Read. 
Our guest today was Dan Sapula, and you can find out more about Dan at his Twitter, Dan Sapula, that's two P's and two L's, his podcast Twitter at Parker Podcast, and a link to his No Sleep Contributions page below. Theme music by Brandon Boone. Follow Brandon on Twitter at Wondrous Sound. Logo by Paddy Byrne. Check out more of his work at paddydesigns.co.uk. Questions? Suggestions? Check us out on Twitter at the Table Read Pod for trivia and upcoming info on our next guests. Special thanks to Olivia White. Without her, none of this would be possible. This show was hosted and created by me, TJ Lee, and produced by David Cummings and TJ Lee in partnership with the No Sleep Podcast, the award-winning premier audio horror experience releasing every Sunday. You can follow me on Twitter at TJ Lee, or if you want to see some of my work, check out tjlee.com or my subreddit r slash TJ Lee, where I tend to frequent. I have another show, providing bi-weekly deep dives into the biggest writers of days gone by and the legends of today. From H.P. Lovecraft to Stephen King to Angela Carter, we've got you covered. Find out more by following us on Twitter at Writers Mythos. We're sure you'll enjoy what we have on offer. The Writers Mythos, every other Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media Incorporated, all rights reserved. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Incorporated. And with that, the reading is over and the veil is closed for now. But we'll be back next week with a new guest, new frightful secrets to be unearthed, and someone fresh will step up for a table read. Who knows what we'll find out.